following program contains language and subject matter that you may consider unsuitable for children. Parental discretion is advised. Greetings, Earthling. Uh, His Highness the Jackal. The Jackal. I'm going to pass the reins to Mr. Jackal, the new king of radio. I think Jackal's a Latino. I'm not sure, but he'll give it to you again. The Jackal. Welcome, everybody, to the Jackal's Head here on PSN Radio. We have two awesome guests with me tonight. I'm going to have on the first hour, Mrs. Marie-Alix Ravel. She's the author of Marie Antoinette's Presents. I'm so happy to have her on the first hour. And then in the second hour, I'm going to welcome back Mr. Robert Morningstar. Now I want to start off with this Einstein story. More evidence that Einstein was right about light speed. This article reads, The cards keep on stacking up in the favor of Albert Einstein being right about light speed. It's uh, looking like its limit is approximately 300,000 kilometers per second, or the C in the uh, famous equation, M E equals MC squared. Um, the Acuras experiment at the uh, Grand Sasso Laboratory in Italy uh, reported Friday that tiny particles called neutrinos did not surpass this commonly recognized speed of light as they traveled from the European Organization of the Nuclear Research CERN, C-E-R-N, in Switzerland, to the Italian Underground Laboratory. That's what the established laws of physics would predict the results wouldn't be special except that it flies in the uh, it, it flies in the face of a measurement from 20, 2011 to challenge the uh, foundation of Einstein's uh, theory and uh, the, late, the foundation of what he had laid out last September scientists at Oprah not uh, not the uh, talk show host but Opera, which stands for <clears throat> Oscillation Project with Emulsion Tracking Apparatus had found that neutrinos from CERN were arriving at Grand Sasso faster than the speed of light. If the particles really did exceed the established speed of light, scientists would have to completely rethink their understanding of how the universe works. Science then, however, uh, did say additionally, additional details have emerged to call this finding into question. In February, CERN acknowledged that the, uh, f- the faulty wiring may have produced the faster-than-light measurements. Uh, today's news isn't the end of the story. However, four Grand Sasso particles detected uh, experiments. Uh, let's see, it says here, Borexino Isaris, I believe that's how you pronounce that. LVD and Oprah will be making new measurements in May to give the uh, final verdict. Theoretical physicist Brian Green at Columbia University told CNN in February that the faster-than-light measurements would probably not hold up scrutiny, hold up to scrutiny. Uh, there are already a lot of experiments, uh, experimental evidence suggesting that no particles can travel beyond the universal speed limit of light speed. They need to have a completely independent confirmation by a separate experiment, ideally using uh, different experimental methods, uh, Green said. And if it were uh, to happen, that would make many of the uh, sit-ups, uh, make many of us sit up in our chairs or maybe even fall off our chairs. So there you go. That's a little bit of uh, science for you guys. Uh, more and more evidence that Einstein was right about the speed of light. And uh, we're going to find out in May if, uh, if he was actually right or not. Not too long from now, actually. Uh, March, May, yeah, March, April, May, a month and a half. We'll find out. I'll, I'm sure there's more going to come out of uh, that story. I'll make sure I update everybody here in May how that turns out. Now. As I said earlier, Mr. Stan Lee put down Superman's flight and is talking a little trash about Superman, but check this out. Stan Lee has, uh, has paid out on DC Comics and, uh, and the way Superman flies. Uh, says here, putting forward how he thinks, and uh, the he and Marvel are more scientific in the way they approach the superpowers of their characters 
and what he would do different. Uh, says, I can give you a very clear and definite understanding as to why I and people at POW at the Marvel uh, company are so much more scientific than the competition. Here's the example. You've seen Superman flying on screen, haven't you? What is uh, his means of propulsion? What makes him fly? He doesn't have a jet engine. There's nothing pushing him. He just sorts of assumes a, her- a horizontal position and lays uh, on the air, and off he goes. When I want a character to fly, such as the Silver Surfer, I give him a, uh, a flying surfboard. Perfectly scientific, perfectly understandable, and not the least bit as frustrating as wondering how Superman does it. So as you can see, science is really something. I'm very much into the ver- to every factor of our stories. Is as scientifically accurate as I can make them. How he gets to uh, scientifically accurate from a flying surfboard, I will never, never know. But... Uh, you know, he might have a point. Uh, Marvel has been in the past a little bit more uh, into the science aspect of things than uh, DC. DC is a little bit more of the mystery and, you know, the mythology of the characters. Uh, Superman, uh, his, it's funny, how does he fly? They really have never explained that. I mean, at first he was leaping tall buildings in a single bound, and that's the way it was, and then all of a sudden he started flying. How did that happen? If you guys agree or don't agree, uh, call up uh, some other time. Not tonight, because we have a bunch of guests on tonight, and I don't want to take away from their time to answer about Superman. But uh, next show, uh, call in. Maybe after the uh, two interviews tonight, I might go on a little bit longer, and I might take some calls if anybody wants to give their two cents on this story. I know that the show has a big following in the comic book community. A lot of folks uh, listen to the show love comic books and know that I love comic books and read a lot of uh, comic books and have a lot of uh, interviews with people in the comic book industry on the show. So... If anybody's listening and they want to throw in the two cents of uh, of this and uh, what Stan Lee said, by all means, email me. How's that? NewLogicJackal at gmail.com. Send me an email. Let me know what you think. I'll read your email on air next time I do a show. If not, just uh, call in, either after the uh, second hour or next week on the show, uh, whichever is fine. Um, Superman and how he flies. Excellent question. You know, they've never really answered that. They really have never answered that. So, uh, but... You know, why is Stanley talking about it now? Like, who cares, really? Honestly. That's that's why the term suspend your disbelief was created, wasn't it? Anyway, speaking of suspending your disbelief, check this out. British officials say that UFO photos have been confiscated. Ah, let me try that again. Confiscated. There we go. That's a tough one. British officials say UFO photos have been confiscated. A retired British official who was once in charge of the Ministry of Defense, or MOD, uh, UFO desk, says he says the best UFO photos he had ever seen was removed from his office and never seen again. Of course, I'm talking about our good friend here, Nick Pope, uh, who was in charge of the MOD and uh, their UFO desk in 1991 to 1994. He says when he started in the position, he was a skeptic. But after reviewing the evidence, uh, he now believes there is uh, something real to the phenomenon that threatens our airspace and should be a concern to national security officials. Pope described the object in the image to the BBC as uh, it was a diamond-shaped metallic craft about 25 meters in diameter, and there seemed to be military jets in the background of it. It wasn't clear whether they were escorting it or even maybe chasing it. Pope says that he was so impressed with the photograph that he had it blown up and put on his wall, he says. It went, and I'm going to quote here. It says, it went to a technical specialist at the defense intelligence staff and elsewhere. 
The results of the analysis were that this is the real thing. This was not a faked photo. This was easily the most compelling UFO photo I've ever seen in my life. According to Pope, one day the division head uh, took the picture down saying he didn't think it was the uh, type of thing that he should be displaying. Pope never saw the photo again. And it hasn't been found in any of the MOD UFO project files. He says, I suspect that a certain uh, person or people thought that this was some sort of secret prototype aircraft, a next generation stealth that maybe nobody should be seeing. And maybe somebody quietly put it through the uh, shredder and uh, thought they were doing us all a favor. Now you can hear more about this on Open Minds Radio in an interview with our good friend Alejandro Rojas. And uh, you can read the article over on UFODailyNews.com. If you guys want to catch up on all your daily UFO-related news, please go to UFODailyNews.com. Once again, uh, thank Alejandro Rojas for letting us uh, take the news items uh, from uh, his website and read them on the air here because he does have a kick-ass UFO website. So everybody check that website out, UFODailyNews.com. Com is the website with our guest of the evening, the author of the book Marie Antoinette's Presents, Miss Marie Alix Ravel herself. Uh, now, just to let you know, Marie Antoinette was born in Austria to a life of unimaginable wealth and unquestionable privileges. At the age of 14, she moved to France and at 18 became queen. When the French Revolution broke out in 1789, everything changed. Marie Antoinette had I had to grow up very fast. Despite all her efforts, she lost everything and finished her life in a small cell. And now we're going to talk to the author of this book. Can we tell the audience a little bit about this book, um, how you came up with the concept? Uh, but first start off with yourself and give us a little bit about your background. Uh, the background, I'm a therapist. And I'm a hypnotherapist too. And I'm specialized in passive uh, aggression. And uh, the idea of the book came because I met uh, the possible reincarnation of Marie Antoinette. She came to my office with an amazing story, and she had been told several times that she was the reincarnation of Marie Antoinette. She did some research. She saw a hypnotherapist before. So she's been doing a lot of research about um, her previous life. And when I first uh, met her, I was kind of... uh, intrigued and I said why not I was open and then I saw many evidences and she had done some research so it was easy to come into the case and look at all the comparisons she made and after I met I met several people to see if she could be the reincarnation of Marie Antoinette like Walter Semkew, Kevin Ryson, Paul Von Ward that are specialized in uh, reincarnation, and the case was a very strong case, so that's why I decided to write uh, that book. Now, Maria actually, she was born to, in... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Look, uh, actually, she wanted to write that book, and then because she, the, it's not easy to be the reincarnation of Marie Antoinette, we decided I would be the, the writer. So that's and just that's for everybody who doesn't know, Marie Antoinette lived in, uh, was born in Austria, and uh, she lived in the French Revolution era, and she lived in 1789. She was told several times by psychics and by people okay. that uh, she could be the reincarnation of Marie Antoinette. And because she had a nightmare, first it was the strength of the nightmare when she was a kid, when she was very, very young. She had a very uh, recurrent nightmare. Every night she was dreaming the same thing. She was dreaming of uh, Will on the cobblestone. She was dreaming of feet coming up wooden steps. And uh, she had uh, 
then she had a very strong sensation of cold in the neck, and then she felt blood, not blood, because she had a, a taste, actually. She didn't, she didn't know it was the blood, the taste of the blood. She said it was metal in the mouth, and then she had, uh, she was uh, waking up, like, feeling bad, you know, very afraid of death, and she had that n- nightmare for years. And then when she saw the first psychic that told her that she was the reincarnation of Marie Antoinette, she told the lady about it, that nightmare. And the lady told her, she said, you know, you've been, you had been uh, behaved every night when you were a kid. So that was the first memory. Is that a common thing that, uh, you know, people who are, have been reincarnated uh, tend to have, you know, these memories come out at, at an early age to this point? Yes. Yes. Uh, kids, especially when the the death uh, was violent, and being baited is very violent uh, and very sudden, it's like uh, kids could uh, remember. Not right. every kid, but uh, kids, kids could remember of their previous life and especially the death. So first that was that memory that was very obvious for her, but she didn't put... She never put everything together. It was like this psychic told her about this reincarnation. And when she was young, she was feeling that her dress, you know, but it was like virtual dresses, not actual dresses. And she was feeling that her dresses were not going through the doors because Hmm. she thought they were too big. And she felt that she was not born at the right time, at the right uh, period of time. So then when she met that lady, she went to see an hypnotherapist. And uh, so she did some research with him. So, And uh, what is very interesting, it's about the dates, about the anniversaries and the people that she met. The strongest evidence in her case is a group of souls because she met around 120 people from her pre- previous life. Hmm, and wow. we could, and uh, when we do, uh, what is very interesting uh, about her case is that we can do historical research pretty easily because there's a lot of writing about her. So that's the strength also of that case. And so she met that people, but, you know, she just knew in her head who was who, and that's it. She just knew it. And uh, when that happened, that we met Walter Thank You, that is a very, uh, is someone that did a lot of researches in um, in the reincarnation field and he had a, a way of putting the cases together like taking the pictures of the past with the pictures mm-hmm. pictures of or portraits of the past with present pictures and compare them together and when we never had the idea of doing it she never she never had the idea i never had the idea so the first time we did is we put the pictures together with the portraits of the previous times just by her remembering who was who and she at that period of time she had only uh, 30 cases around that uh, amount a uh, number of uh, cases and all the portraits were matching so that was very that was like kind of a breakthrough and uh, and then we started to look at their lives together, and we decided to meet Walter to meet Walter Senkiu. That saw that was a very strong case because of that group of souls, of group of souls. Because you can tell that 
the person, a person can tell she has been the reincarnation, especially of a famous person. You know, it's like, at first it's very hard to believe, but when right. we see that all the... Oh, it is. Oh, yes, it is. And all the characteristics, the skills, and especially all the people around her continue what they have studied in the previous life. They still look alike. They still have kind of the same personality. They still have the same relationships with her. Now, so that it's actually all brings those evidences. That brings me to a question. Is there a physical resemblance between her and Marie Antoinette? Yes. Yes, there is. And there is with people from her family. And what is very interesting is that, for example, her daughter has not been born from... Um, the. She still, look, she still looks alike that what well, she was, you know, in the previous <laughs> life. And it's like with people, with uh, Marie Antoinette, the reincarnation of Marie Antoinette in the book, her name is Kira Hermine. It's, she's been born from other parents, you know, that are not related to that uh, same bloodline, and she still looks alike. So that's something very, very interesting to consider. Oh, that is interesting. Now, give us a little bit of a background on Marie Antoinette herself. She was born, or she lived, by, like I said, in the 1700s, uh, part of the revolutionary uh, French Revolution. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about her background? Uh, she was born uh, from a very wealthy uh, family in Austria in, uh, on November 2nd, 1755. And uh, her uh, mother and her parents were emperor. And she was, uh, her mother was empress of uh, Austria. So she was born in a very wealthy and powerful family. So all the kids, she was, uh, the daughter, you know, they had 16 kids. So she was oh, wow. uh, the one before the last one. Okay. And uh, <laughs> all the kids, yes, and all the kids, it was very interesting because in those families, the kids are used in a way, you know, to strengthen the position of the country. So they right. have to be married with some with another country, with a, a prince or a king in another country to strength to strengthen the position or to make peace. So in that case, she had been married to Louis the fifth, uh, the Louis Auguste at that period of time because he was just a dauphin, he was just a prince, and she was um, she had been married to that man, that young man, because she was fourteen years old, as soon as they have their periods, you know, it's like they're, they're married, and, they're, and we hope they have kids very soon. So she was married to the, the Prince of France in order to make peace with France, actually. And France, oh, wow. at that period of time, was very, very, it was one of the strongest countries uh, in Europe. So that was really a very beautiful destiny to be married in that condition. So she was married when she was 14. And when you get married, you just you just leave everything behind you. You move to another country, but nothing is attached from your uh, previous position before from, from your previous country. So you don't see your parents anymore. She never saw her mother uh, until her death. So, and then... So she became the queen of France when she was 19, and because Louis XV died, 
and then she had kids, so she was a queen. And the, but the the French Revolution was starting, you know, to um, uh, gravel. I, I don't know how to say. Uh, was starting. It it broke out uh, broke out in uh, 1789. So she was born in 1755. That happened when she was 34 years old. And then uh, in uh, 1793, she had been beheaded on oh, October wow. 16. Yeah, yep. so she was pretty young. She was less. She was uh, almost uh, 38 years old. And uh, because she was Austrian, and uh, she was, con- you know, she was the scapegoat actually in uh, in France. People didn't like it, didn't like her. And she was considered as uh, spending a lot of money. That was not true. She was not spending more money than a mistress of the fifteenth before her. And she had uh, to, uh, you know, to 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 wear beautiful dresses because she was a queen. So there was a lot of uh, uh, pamphlets that were saying that she was evil and a lot of things. So that's why she had been behaved for a lot of things. So that's her imagine, story. Imagine if we did that to today's politicians for not liking them or for them doing quote unquote <laughs> evil things. <laughs> President Obama would be money, a dead for man right now. <laughs> that's that's it, it's an amazing story. Her life, uh, and she was the last queen of France, right? She was the last queen of France. Yes, the, of that. Now, uh, yes, because after there were kings and the princess, but it was the old regime. After it was with the constitution, so that was not the same. Uh, we said that she was the last queen of France. Now, as a hypnotherapist and a psychiatrist, I mean, you No, not psychiatrist, I'm a psychotherapist. Psychotherapist, not psychi- uh, yes, yes, yes. But uh, you do hypnosis, right? You do uh, hypnosis yes, and I you do, do hypnotherapy? You know, as a as a person who does hypnosis, have you come across other folks who have had similar stories or as good of a story as this woman who uh, claims to be Marie Antoinette? And uh, is there a theme that you've gotten from these people? You know, you know, like a common theme um, on their memories, on uh, where they, you know, the experiences they have when they start remembering who they were, for example. Yes, I don't have any. Person, I didn't have any person uh, that famous actually, or not even famous. It's like people unfold things that they can't do in this life. They have to get back in the previous life to get the memory that make them stuck in this life. So as soon as they understand what happened, it's like they can release the the wound or the event or the relationship. Because sometimes it's just about it can be only about a relationship. Someone. It's really in love with someone else, and the relationship is not working. But as soon as you you find out why in the previous life, then the person can can go on and doesn't feel stuck with that relationship. So it can work with everything actually. That's really that's really helpful, and that's usually happening. People coming if they can be curious, you know, they just want to know who they could have been. But right. most of the time, it's because they're really stuck about something. It's like they can go on, and uh, they need to get an answer to uh, move to move on. And, and you know, the reason I, I asked that question was I wanted to know if there is kind of a common theme between people who've had this experience. For example, um, 
just from my own kind of uh, researching into the subject in the past, because, like, you know, like I told you in email, I actually I'm into the subject and I've done a little bit of homework on it. Um, one thing I've seen in, in common place is a lot of folks who do claim to have memories from a past life share a theme that they die tragically, they die abruptly, or they die in, in a horrific way. Um, have you seen that as, as a common theme yourself also? Most of the time, yes, I agree. Most of the time, but not always. Not always, and sometimes they have died in very, very bad circumstances, but the memory is locked because the right. death is too, too painful. So we can see some something, but some that happened maybe once or twice, and then I, I could see it what happened, but I knew that it was locked. It was the person couldn't get couldn't say it because it was too awful things that they, they did in the previous life like you know murdering someone and the memory was uh, they couldn't get in but yes most of it not most of the time I would say maybe 60% uh, 60 65% of people they, they come because uh, a, a previous death a painful death of a previous life had, have to be addressed that must be an awful feeling to have a memory of dying. I mean, how, how does one even cope with that? I mean, how do you deal with that as uh, as a doctor who's uh, doing, you know, hypnotherapy on these people? How do you help them deal with this kind of a memory? I I help them to see what they feel, what they felt, and what they thought, in order to release that emotion that they had when they because it's most of the time it's what we thought you know it's not it's for sure it's 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 what happens that what happened that matters but it's also what the person thought at that period of time uh, when right. the person died or what they felt and so that's what we release first and i what i do always is i help them to to forgive to forgive themselves to forgive whatever happened in order for them to live their present life in a good way. Because once you have anger attached to something, you, you're stuck somewhere where the first feeling happened. So that's very important. And I believe in reincarnation. And people that do that, most of the time they do. So we don't see the death as an awful thing. It's like just transition to something else and then we come back and then we continue to experience what we are supposed to experience because we're here to experience our, to experience uh, things and to, to evolve to improve our relationships to, um, to feel better and uh, to release pain you know wounds to release uh, wounds to heal wounds is there, is there any doubt in your mind that uh, this might be just some kind of uh, illusion that she had? Maybe she just heard the story as a kid. I mean, does that doubt ever cross your mind, or are you really you believe 100% that she really was Marie Antoinette? And what are the chances that that could be the case? Uh, you know, sometimes, and I sit um, uh, with clients because they're afraid because they say, oh, I read that, and uh, that may be the memory of this. You know, when I was a kid, but when you're a kid and when you're an adult, you're in touch with a lot of information. So what right. about this information? Why this information? And uh, I tell people that it's the door, so they don't have to uh, to stop the process because it's just 
a first memory that will go to another one, to another one, and uh, there's going to be a process. So it's very important to open the door, and people are not used to going into that kind of state, so they must refer to something they know. So that's very important for them to feel confident in the process. So in the case of the reincarnation of Marie-Antoinette, when for sure she learned uh, Marie-Antoinette, it's part of the history of France, especially in France. But you don't, um, uh, in her, you know, at school you don't learn history as, you know, the way it uh, it happened usually, <laughs> you know. You, you learn it the way um, they want you uh, to know. Yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's the same ev- everywhere, even in France. <laughs> exactly, even in France, and we don't learn about the feelings. We don't learn about the personality of those person. You know, it's like it feels like, oh my God, it's wonderful. She was the queen, and uh, everybody identify themselves to that. But she was first a woman, right. like every woman in the world. But she had that happened that she had a wonderful destiny. But that was not that wonderful, because she she uh, she she had been behaved. Mm, and yes. being a queen is a lot of protocols. There's a lot of things you have to do. You're not free. It's not because you live in wealth, and um, it seems like uh, you know if. Um, and what could I say? Like um, a wonderful movie, you know. It's, she has everything, but when when you live the life of those people, it's not that wonderful, actually. And especially when you come across the French Revolution or across a revolution. Any revolution. So, you know, it, it, it's funny you say that because I, I hear, you know, some of the biggest, you know, celebrities of all times, kind of like the Michael Jacksons, the Elvis Presleys, the John Lennon, some of these big, big celebrities. And I'm just talking about modern times. I'm not talking about, you know, 200 years ago, but even our modern time celebrities, the big, big names, uh, will often say that their fame, you know, actually is kind of a down, you know, fall for them because their life is completely turned upside down. They don't have any privacy. They're not themselves, basically. And that's why a lot of them end up badly. Uh, so fame, celebrity, a lot of money is not always a good thing. Exactly. And they've, and they, it's very hard. You know the problem of Pierre Ming, so the name in the book? It's like mm-hmm. it's when you're queen or when you're persons like uh, uh, Elvis Presley or Michael Jackson, it's very hard to know why people are with you, what they want from you. And uh, are they there because the person is famous or because of the position or because they really love them because there's money in between and money can, you know, make things false or fake. You don't really know. So in that life, that was very interesting because she met those people again and she had um, the possibility to know who was true and who was not because of the relationship today. And now, has she come, you know, to you with uh, new memories uh, since you've written the book? Uh, anything that you know she might remember at all that uh, is, you know, has come up recently about this past life? I'm sorry, about this past life. Yes, she had to address something about relationships, and that's why uh, she came to see me because uh, she just wanted to get to something like that, you know, to understand. And uh, she didn't tell me right away because that's that's something very hard to uh, 
to say, you know, to even to a hypnotherapist or to a therapist, you have to see. And and for me, for sure, if someone comes to to tell me, oh, I was uh, whoever in the past that was very famous, I would say, okay, why not? I'm open because I'm a therapist, but then I'm going to check on it. Right. I'm going to check if that works. I had clients like this, and they could say, oh, I was this person, and then we checked, and that didn't match because of right. his story or because of writings and uh, because of data, because of a, lot, of a lot of things, because of the person also mixing, you know, events from a period of time with another period of time because she read things in uh, his story books or she read different uh, different stories. So that's very interesting. After it's a lot of research to look what's to, to see what really happened. And in the case of uh, Marie-Antoinette's reincarnation, the possible reincarnation of Marie-Antoinette, it's like there's a lot of writing, a lot, a lot of writing. So it's very easy to uh, to compare. And I had the help of people outside. I I, I asked for help from uh, Walter Sanchu, Kevin Rotten, and Paul Von Wall to see if that case could be a strong case. So that was a lot of research. Now, how much time have you actually spent researching and putting this book together since uh, you've been doing this? Uh, she had done research for 12, 13 years, I think, something like that. But for myself, it was oh my. kind of three years. Three years. Oh, my. That's because a it's time. a lot of data. That's a lot of data. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, no, like I said, guys, it's a really good read. I really urge everybody to go and get a copy of the book immediately on Amazon.com or wherever you can, you can any bookstore in your neighborhood or in your town, do it. Uh, in the no, back it's of the more book, on, uh, it's more on the internet right now, actually. Oh, okay. Not it is a Am- bookstore. Like Amazon.com and, and, and uh, MarieAntoinettePresent.com too. And uh, I think other uh, bookstores on the uh, internet, like Barnes and Nobles and uh, everything on the internet, actually. Oh, awesome. Now, in the back of the book, there there is a quote that I really thought was interesting. It says here, Marie Antoinette presents, it's not science fiction partially based in reality. It is reality cloaked in fiction based on the emerging science of reincarnation. Now, yeah. can we expand that, on that a little bit, the emerging science of reincarnation? How much science is there being done on this subject that we, that we don't know about? Uh, it's because we, we have, uh, you know, the reincarnation is, about, is a lot about hypnotherapy and psychics and uh, so something... Uh, most spiritual, and I've, I've been very interested in um, putting everything together. And um, I was I was interested to work uh, with uh, uh, science, and uh, that happened that I met Paul von Wall that uh, wrote, uh, that wrote the Soul Genome, and I, I think that you have worked for them also. That uh, you went on your show, maybe some no. Yes, yes, Paul. Was in yes, contact yes, with friend. you, Paul Van Ward, and good, so good I sent him. Yes. yes, so he, because he wrote that book and he tried, you know, it's the it's the beginning of uh, of of the science, I, we could say, mm-hmm. because we're trying to find a protocol in order to compare with all the cases. So the pre the first thing is that we compare the pictures pictures or portraits from the previous life and the present life to see if there's a match. Mm-hmm. So 
Paul has a way to do it. He does measurements of the face, like uh, in the NASA. So it's pretty accurate. So that's the first step. And then we compare the skills, you know, the personality, the uh, relationships, the behavior in relationships to see the person could be a match. So that's how we we talk about um, science. It's just about emerging science because it's really the beginning of it. Nothing has really been done about it. As well to thank you. There are people, you know, there's Brian Bass, there's uh, uh, Ian Stevenson. So there are people that have started to do research about it. And then to put all information together to see that's that's a good case. And that protocol can apply to everybody. So as soon as you saw that you had a previous life, as this person or this other person, then we put all the information together to see if that could be possibly a good match or not. And there's also something that we have started, but it's really, really, really the beginning. So we just had uh, one test. And uh, we were thinking about maybe finding uh, markers of reincarnation in the DNA. So we had used uh, a sample of uh, Marie-Antoinette, with a sample of Kira, and we have put them together. But that was the mitochondrial uh, test. So that was basically to determine if she was of the same blood of Marie Antoinette that she was not, because she was she's not in the bloodline of Marie Antoinette. But that was the first right. step to, st- to say that we could start, that we can start the the um, to go into the DNA research. But then it's. Um, just the beginning, just the beginning. Uh, and, and we have to have a lot of cases. We have to have a lot of uh, tests, actually, and to find the markers that are reproducing, we... that are coming from the previous life into the pre- uh, present life. Now, how do we know that we actually have uh, actual DNA samples from Marie Antoinette? I mean, how, how did they get DNA samples from her? Because there was that, and that's very interesting. You know, that could be another proof. It's like... In 2000, they made um, a DNA test of Marie Antoinette uh, because there was um, there was um, some people that were claiming being the descendant of her son uh, that died in prison, that supposedly died in prison. So, they, because there was a polemic in France, they had to prove that the descendants were the descendant of Marie Antoinette or not. So, uh, no, in fact, what they did is they proved that the kid that died in the prison was the son of Marie-Antoinette. So that's why we had a sample of the DNA of Marie-Antoinette, because we had to prove that. They had to prove that, actually. And they proved that the kid died in prison. So they could not have been descendant from Marie-Antoinette, from the bloodline of Marie-Antoinette. And what was very interesting is that in 19... test happened in 2000 and they got the results in 2000. In 1995, Kiera did a uh, hypnotherapy session and she saw her kid dying in the prison. So it was very interesting because she got the information five years because before the DNA test happened. Right. So, but they had to do a DNA test to uh, to be sure of it. But she was sure of it five years ago, years before. 
So that could right, be another right, right. proof. I talk about it in the book, actually. Yeah, that's a, that's an uh, amazing uh, scientific um, coincidence. <laughs> if it's just a coincidence, uh, if it's a coincidence, yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's amazing. You know, that's an interesting way to try to check uh, to see if some of these folks really are the reincarnated. Uh, whoever, uh, by doing DNA testing. That's brilliant. I never actually thought of that uh, or thought that that could even be done. Um, so I'm, I'm blown away by that fact. Um, incredible stuff. Now, what's what's next for you? Are you going to write a follow-up book to this or are you writing something else? Yeah, I started. Uh, genre? No, I've started, started to, uh, yes, to do the, to write the following, yes, of the book. I want to write two more, actually. Oh, a trilogy of books. Uh, nice. Yes. And uh, talking about things that really happened during the French Revolution and that are not really into history books and that are still uh, um, mysteries, but they are not when you compare, when you get the information from uh, reincarnation. So that's very, very interesting. So that's why I want to write that second book. So it's going to talk about French Revolution and what. really happened actually why it happened and uh, what were the um the interest interest no interests oh. of people behind it what really ah. really happened when and is we that put that together that? i don't I'm, I'm i've just and it's funny i'm working on it for the friend and uh, it's like we've done uh, the um, the outline for love, and I've started to write, really write today. So hopefully we we hope before the end of the year. Oh, we got a lot of research and a lot of writing. As soon as you have that book ready, I definitely would love you ha- to have you back on and uh, talk about that book. Uh, listen, uh, we're almost out of time, and, and man, this uh, this. Uh, Really saddens me because I'm, I'm having such a great time talking about this book, uh, Marie. Uh, kid, I, you know, I'd love to have you back on uh, once that, that book is out. You've been a wonderful, wonderful guest on the show, and this is just an amazing book. Can you give everybody again your website address and uh, again tell everybody where the book is at so they can go ahead and, and buy it immediately? It's marieantoinettepaisen.com. So M A R I E A N T O I N E T T E S p r e s e n t dot com or it's on amazon dot com too. That's incredible. That's awesome. Uh, listen, one more thing before I let you go. Um, I want to know if I if I could uh, get a small bumper from you. We're going to use it to promote this episode online and uh, and stuff in the future. Uh, if you could say the following phrase for me: I am Maria Alex uh, Ravel, the author of Marie Antoinette Presents, and now you're tuned in to the Jackal's Head on PSN Radio. Thank you. Can you say that for me? I'm sorry? Oh, you want me to say it? Yeah, yeah. It's a small bumper. We use, uh, we do it in every show to uh, to promote the episode later on on the internet. Uh, just say uh, the following for me. Uh, this is Marie Alix Ravel, author of Marie Antoinette Presents, and now you're tuned into the Jackal's Head. And we're going to use that as promotional uh, to promote the book and promote the episode. Okay, so this is Marie Antoinette uh, Ravel, the author of Marie Antoinette Presents, and you're... Listening to the radio checkup. Is that it? Yes, it is. Do it again. It was breaking up a little bit. Uh, here, make it a little bit easier. Just say, uh, this is Maria Alex Ravel, author of Maria Antoinette Presents, and now you're tuned in to the Jackal's Head. 
Okay. Uh, this is Maria Alexander, author of the of Marianne Tyson, and you're listening to the Jackal's Head. No, I'm, I'm I'm very bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay, dear. Uh, listen, though, regardless, it's been a blast having you on the show. Uh, again, when the next book is done, I really want to have you back on so we can talk about that book and I can read I'd it like as well. I'd like to know. Every, everybody, please check out the website. Uh, again, is uh, com. Check that website out. Get the book. It's a great, great book. Marie, thank you so much, dear, for being on. Our next guest, Mr. Robert Morningstar, is the co-editor of the UFO Digest and has been an instrumental piece in the growth and success of that publication. Robert has recruited a variety of writers who are experts in their individual fields. Robert is also a graduate of the Power Memorial Academy uh, University, and uh, he is uh, of, he is a Yang family and Tai Chi master, which has always amazed me every time I've talked to this man, and really one of my favorite guests on this show uh, that I've had on. Again, an amazing uh, an amazing guest, Mr. Robert Morningstar. Welcome to the Jackal's Head. Welcome back, sir. Thank you very much, Angel. Good to be here. And a Tai Chi master. Every time I read your bio and I read that, it just uh, it trips me out. It's, that's so cool. I, I, I've never known anybody who's an actual Tai Chi master until I met you. Well, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have been recruited into Tai Chi at a very young age. Most people leave Tai Chi for, they think of it as an old man sport, you know, or uh, right. like a rehabilitation program. But it's the oldest martial art in the world. And I got into Kung Fu very early in my life. I was in my, well, I was 20. Uh, and then I discovered that there was something older and even more uh, arcane, I would call it, and mysterious. And I learned that there was this dance that you had to learn to dance for five years before you could master it. But lo and behold, I went from a, the top Kung Fu school in New York City into the lap of the Tai Chi masters, more or less. They picked me up. Uh, they picked me out and uh, asked me to join. And it was one of the greatest blessings of my life to have been trained by masters and grandmasters. And so I advanced very rapidly, and by the age of 27, I was acknowledged uh, as a Yang family Tai Chi master. I'm also acknowledged by the Hong Kong Tai Chi Masters Association, and I was um, actually, you might say I did my dissertation for the, the two leading masters of the Yang family in the People's Republic of China in 1986. Uh, it's quite it's quite a long story. So <laughs> I'm approaching my 40th year of Tai Chi. That's incredible. Now you've also taught as a lecturer at Hunter College, uh, Oberlin College, and uh, yes. as a lay therapist. In in that in itself is is an amazing history. You know, how did you go from that to ufology? Well, ufology has actually been part of my whole life. I grew up, you might say, the atomic kid. You know, in the 1950s, I was growing up. And my first exposure to UFOs uh, consciously around was around 1956 when uh, I started to hear about flying saucers and we were watching a CBS News report and suddenly they did a, um, a special flash that an airliner uh, flying across the south had been tracked by UFOs. And using, you know, the... the, the Stick board, uh, cut and paste of literal shapes of airplanes and uh, shapes of UFOs. They did a little model on on, uh, on CBS 
of uh, something like a DC-6 uh, airliner, an Electra type of aircraft, and two UFOs pacing it. It was just a still shot, but they made the UFOs flash on and off by using lights reflecting on them. My father jumped out of his seat and he said, Oh my, my God, I saw that. I... In 1948, I was a sailor in the Caribbean, and I saw one of those things. I didn't even have a word for what it was. And he looked at me, and he, looked at, he showed me his arm, and the hairs were standing up on his arms. And he said, look, look at my arms. My, the hair still stands up on my arms when I think about this. And then he went on to tell me about a sighting that he had in the Caribbean when he was in the Merchant Marine, and he was on watch one night, and he saw this brilliant light appear. He was in the crow's nest, by the way. So he saw this bright, bright light appear uh, ahead of the ship, but unlike any other shipping light he'd ever seen. So he climbed down the mast, went to the pilot house, talked to the pilot. The pilot said, yeah, I see it. I don't know what that is. And he says, he says, we better tell the captain. So he went downstairs to wake the captain. This is around 2 or 3 in the morning, so the captain is asleep. So he goes down wakes up the captain, who he said to me was a Jamaican, so he woke him up, Captain, Captain, there's a strange light. Come up and see this. And he said, by the time I went down the stairs, woke up the captain and came back up, the light had really gotten close. The captain was still waking up, and he's still wiping his eyes and trying to, you know, get out of a, a drowsy, half-awake state. He sees the light, and he says, what? Man, what is that? What is that, man? And he said, they all got excited. The thing came by, and they had been uh, sailing on a perfectly calm sea. But when this craft, he said, we saw then it wasn't a ship. It was uh, flying about 30, 40 feet above the water, in, in very intense, very bright. But as soon as it flew by, it created waves in the water, even though it was up in the air, and the ship rocked. And he said that they were, he was, it was so otherworldly, frightening, that the the pilot, the guy at the helm, actually wet his pants right there. And uh, oh that, was his er that was his earliest experience of a UFO. And he said, I didn't have a word for what, for what that was, because in 1948, uh, 47, 48, the word uh, UFO wasn't around, and especially merchant marines and, you know, at sea, they weren't, they weren't hearing right. about flying saucers that early. It, it didn't... Uh, pop into the popular consciousness for at least another year. So that's uh, Well, 47, back, we uh, had the, uh, the Roswell incident. Pardon 47, me? we had the Roswell, the Roswell incident happened in 47, so... That's correct. Yeah, but, yeah there was uh, a little bit of he, awareness. He wasn't, he wasn't aware of it. He was a quartermaster on a, on a merchant ship uh, sailing the Caribbean, and I don't think he was reading a lot of newspapers, and, and uh, the word didn't disseminate that rapidly. Right. You know? So, but that was the thing that struck me when he told me the story. He said, that's what I saw when I was a merchant marine, and I didn't have a word for what it was. That's, that's a very telling statement, you know, and uh, I think a lot of people are mm -hmm. befuddled, left mystified by their first encounters with UFOs. New York is a hotbed of UFO activity, though it you is. never hear about it on, on the news.
You know, it always amazes me when I hear uh, people come out, especially people in incredible positions like politicians or lawyers or, well, they're not tech credible. Hold on, let me take that back. Lawyers and politicians, not credible. But doctors, let's put it this way, doctors, police officers, uh, you know, people have some credibility uh, when they come out and uh, they, they say that they've seen UFOs and, you know, or they've had, you know, alien abduction. Uh, you know, it always amazes me the kind of reaction people have. Uh, when they come out with stories, it does. Especially, does. You know, that's one thing that I've always wanted to uh, to say. Uh, it, you know, not only uh, does it take a courageous person, but uh, somebody like Sammy Hagar, for example, somebody of that fame to come forward. Uh, you know, I applaud him for coming forward with his story, and that he's a very courageous person. You're absolutely right. Uh, people like him that yeah, are in, you know, in chance, the spotlight. You know, um, it's less. Uh, it's less uh, dangerous than so now. In the old days, right. you took a greater chance with your career, uh, right. your position, your credibility. But, you know, the last five years, uh, in particular since 2007, has seen a, a radical change in consciousness and awareness. And the old ploys of ridiculing, of trying to discredit witnesses, uh, they're frowned upon now, you know. You watch uh, the ancient alien series, and uh, you know, it's, there's no skepticism involved. They don't have this uh, Magaha or uh, Michael Shermer on TV anymore trying to debunk UFO stories. They tell the straight, they tell straight, uh, straight accounts now. They don't feel they need to try to ridicule or debunk it. So we have seen. It's uh, true. Yep. A radical change in, in the awareness of the American public and the willingness to to come out and, and be open about experiences. Well, uh, interestingly, you know, there's a the outpost uh, the outpostforum dot com. They used mm-hmm. to be Open Minds Forum, but they broke down, right. uh, you know, organizationally. So they started the <laughs> yes. outpostforum dot com. And a friend of mine there, Surfer Doc, sent me an article or made a comment on a, on a UFO post that I made saying that when he was in um, he was involved in uh, psychological testing in the US Marines at one time in Bartow California and that one of the sergeants there said to him that he and another marine had uh, chanced upon a UFO that they saw come up out of water absorb a lot of water and then take off and the um, the uh, other Marine said to the sergeant, wow, what do you think we should do? And the sergeant said, don't tell anyone. Don't ever <laughs> tell anyone. <laughs> so uh, in the military, it, it's, uh, it hasn't changed much. You can't, uh, right. you can't peep UFO in, in the end of your career in the military because, you know, they're locked into a, a, an old policy. And right. it's uh, very hard to change, you know. It's almost uh, written in stone. The, the the collusion of the United States Air Force in debunking it uh, now has them painted into a corner so that when uh, UFOs manifest en masse, you know, like, like the, the mass UFO flyover that we had in New York City October 13th in uh, 2010, they're left dumbfounded, you know. Imagine trying to come out and tell the truth after 70 years of lying. It leaves you in a, in a lurch, you know. All the yes. ridicule you heaped on the public, all the false 
science you use to to back up uh, 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 basically a fake paradigm of science. So they're they're wrestling with a really big problem. You know, uh, Robert, what's one way do you think that they could uh, kind of reveal that there is extraterrestrial life without getting into any trouble? Uh, do you think there's a way out for the government where they could reveal it and, and still kind of not have uh, you know that bad karma from you know the from the uh, public because they lied to us? Uh, do you think there's a way they could just say you know we just found life somewhere and kind of reveal it that way slowly? Do you think that might happen? That's how we might get disclosure? Because, you know, you're absolutely right. There is a lot of political implications for them coming out and just saying, you know what, we've been lying to you for the last 60 years. Yeah. Sorry. Well, you know, I that's mean, the problem. You think that's uh, a more accurate route to go by? The, yeah, if you the I, they have to think this out, you know. It's not my problem. Right. <laughs> it's their problem. <laughs> yes. So they have to think this out. And uh, fessing up is really the only thing I can see. There's no way to save face. There's no way for the government to save face. There is a way for a politician to save face, say, uh, a, a, some courageous president who can come out with, with the permission of the military to be the front man, you know, for it. Right. And to say, folks, I'm sorry. You know, we had no way of understanding this. We thought it would be very dangerous for the public, uh, right. mind, for the public psychology. To, and religion and economics to to be exposed to this information. At that time, we were a less mature society than we are now. America has grown intellectually and psychologically, and uh, we believe that uh, things have changed since 1938 and 1947. And perhaps uh, we can tell you the truth, but we did not have the truth to tell it. It was isolated. You know, that's the way I would go. We have now. We did not have the truth to tell it. It was isolated in some secret department of the government, which we are now ready to reveal. I'm learning, the president should say, I'm learning about it for the first time, just as you are. I've just been... Which, my, which might not be a lie. Pardon it me? might not be a lie. You know, just because he's the president doesn't mean he's, you know, well, knowledgeable of this cover-up. That's, that's true. He would be telling the truth. Yeah. You know, there's only one president, I, I believe, who who really had the full UFO dossier, and that would have been George Herbert Walker Bush, not his right. son. He's the only one that I think was fully briefed because he was in there from the get-go. And many of the uh, people involved in, in the intri intrigues of that era, you know what I'm talking about, from the 60s onward, uh, from the death of Kennedy onward, the big secret underlying the whole uh, cover-up, was the importance of UFOs in the death of John F. Kennedy. Which always brings me back to the uh, great series that only ran one season, Dark Skies. And yes. it just uh, it baffles the mind how perfectly, almost lifelike accurate Bryce Abel got that story. Because, you, you know, know, when you watch that series, you're like, man, oh. this this has to be, you know, the truth. I mean, there's... It's so it looks so authentic, like like this is yeah. actually a depiction of what really happened. Now you know it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I had the good fortune of missing every single episode of Dark Sky. Oh my! It was ever shown <laughs> on NBC for the four years that it was on. I just avoid network television, so it was a great pleasure when a Dark Skies DVD set came out that I was. Um, I was fortunate enough as editor of the of UFO Digest to receive a set so that I could review it. 
And I have to say, seeing it uncut, um, no commercial breaks, right. uh, four seasons uh, in a row, I think three and a half years, to be able to study and view it that way was a fantastic experience. And lo and behold, there were some uh, events that uh, Zeibel, Bryce Zeibel put into that uh, film that were so prophetic that mm-hmm. they came true for me the day yes. after I saw one of the episodes. The one I'm talking about is the one about the buried flying saucer up in uh, mm-hmm. Oregon, and they bring yes. a helicopter in to pull it out, and if they pull it out, the thing's going to detonate and so on. But they lift it out, and the helicopter's carrying the craft, trying to uh, transport it. Well, I left that episode, and the very next day, um, you know, surfing through the internet and receiving all these messages from people that I get 100 or 200 a day. You know, I would say about 40%, 50% of it related to UFOs. There was a, um, a YouTube video from Russia that captured one of the Russian hind helicopters creating up and lifting and carrying off a disc-shaped object, just as I had seen in Bryce Seibel's Dark Sky. Except that he had done it in 1994-95, and here we're talking about, uh, that was 2011, in the last year. So it is an excellent, uh, it's an excellent uh, series. And the way they captured the 60s, you know, the car, oh, incredible. dress, style, it's brilliant. It's really one of the best things I've ever seen. I've always kind of said that, uh, you know, the X-Files unfortunately came out in the same uh, time period and kind of took, you know, it, it stole the show, so to speak. You know, everybody kind of became an X-Files junkie. Uh, but in reality, I think the better of the two series, and by the way, it only ran for a full 19-episode season. They just replayed it for two seasons afterwards, so it kind of felt like it was on for four seasons. Uh, but it was from 96 to 97. I thought it was three years it was on. Yeah, yeah, and I'll tell you what, the, you know, the X-Files might have gotten all the glory, uh, mm-hmm. but again, you know, this, to me, if you if you just want to look at a, at a ufology series and a series, uh, you know, that deals with the subject in a serious manner, I thought The Dark Skies was just phenomenally well done. Yes, you know what was also interesting? The, uh, By the way, Robert, you're, you're you're breaking up a little bit before you continue. Um, your Skype is breaking up just a little bit. Uh, uh, let uh, me... uh, it's strange uh, events happen when I uh, start discussing you with more than some. Yes. Yeah, I know we can barely understand you. I think that the aliens are definitely abducting you at this very moment, and uh, you're kind of beaming out of existence because we really cannot understand a word you're saying. Um uh, let's do this. Let's hang up, and I'm going to call you right back. Uh, hopefully that would fix it. Okay. And, uh, yeah, everybody's kind of in the chat room saying, what, we can't hear him. Oh, my God, we're losing him. They're okay. beaming him out, Scotty. Okay. Uh, Robert, just sit that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang up and call you right back. This kind of, you know, it fixes it sometimes, folks. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the New World Order has a plan for all of us, and that plan is to silence the truth. But the hell with the New World Order, and the hell with that. I'm not going to have the truth silenced. Robert, are you there, sir? Yes, I'm here. Perfect, that fixed it. You know, this happens uh, every once in a while where we call from Skype to a uh, cell phone or, or a mobile device. Oh, uh, right, kind. that's the problem. See, uh, yeah. that's one of the reasons that uh, I don't use Skype. It, t- it tends to kind of uh, break down after a, a certain period of time. Anyway, let's go on. Let's yes. Get, let's get that as long as we have a good connection for now. 
Yeah, continuing. Uh, you know, actually, I wanted to jump on onto a story that I've read here a while back. I actually, uh, it's it's from December twenty eighth, uh, twenty eleven. You sent it uh, to me about photos that may reveal ET ruins on the moon. Uh, say some scientists and uh, talk a little bit about the moon and you know what you've uncovered uh, in the last uh, few months. Well, the moon is one of the most fascinating subjects in life, and the whole reason for going to the moon and the mysteries of of the moon. The secrets that they've kept—it's—it's uh, uh, it's an ongoing um, study for me. And what I wrote to you about was um, my recent uh, studies in in lunar into the lunar anomalies and searching for specific um, sites. One of the subjects is why did we land on the moon? Where we landed on the moon—you know—the moon's an awfully big place. And we chose uh, the, 11, the Apollo 11 through Apollo 17 landing sites for various reasons, but not all of them obvious. One of the things that I had heard um, from Richard Hoagland and others uh, that leaked information from NASA, for example, I'm also in contact with Ken Johnson, former NASA engineer, and uh, Clark McClellan, who was a science mm-hmm. officer in the space shuttle program. And I've learned a lot about uh, what was going, background information on the moon that was kept from the public. One of the most fascinating uh, topics that I learned of was from Richard Hoagland, and specifically the reasons for landing where we did. And uh, the subject was, hey, hey Richard, what do you, why do you think they were landing there? And he said, well, they were looking for, un- in, uh, they were looking for entrances into the interior of the moon. That was one of their main tasks, but they didn't tell the public about that. I said, well, really? He said, yes, there are huge, huge entrances into the lunar interior. And they were uh, going into these regions to get take closer looks at this in the hopes of finding a way of getting inside. I said, really? So over the years, this topic came up. And so it was in the background of my awareness as I study lunar photographs of all kinds. Then I came across the landing of uh, NASA before each of the uh, missions issued, um, well, what we would call a PDF now, but it was a hard copy then, of a mission plan and uh, landing sites and uh, coordinates. And I was studying the Apollo 11 um, landing uh, landing guide, you might say. And while looking at that, I, there was a photograph in there that was remarkable because it had uh, two lines across, across uh, coming down diagonally from top to bottom, and one uh, had one number of four. There was one crater that was labeled Maislin, and there to the upper left area of the crater was a remarkable structure. That's the only thing I could call it. It's like a structure, like the front of an Egyptian temple or what I describe now is a grand central station demolished on the moon and no reference, absolutely no reference at all to that area while referencing the the flyover area um, at four degrees. That was what the number four was, um, four degrees of uh, latitude. So that was over 10 years ago and I couldn't find one word on this strange object or another photograph of it. So at the time that you, um, uh, December 28th or so, 
I was uh, preparing for um, remote viewing uh, class that I was teaching, and the last uh, the last subject was targeting the moon, doing uh, meditation and trying to visualize uh, regions of the moon. So that meditation put me back into my lunar studies mode. And lo and behold, I found the original photograph of the of the photograph I'm talking about. And in that photograph, I started to enhance it. One of my my skills is a photo enhancement. I can take something that's either totally, almost totally black, or totally burned out and washed out in white, and I can improve the quality uh, significantly. So I started to work on this, and. As the image emerged, which will be published in UFO Digest soon, I started to see a huge collapsed structure that I would describe as a, something of a collapsed dome structure with a rect rectilinear facade, something that looks like the front of the uh, Egyptian temples at the in the Valley of the Kings. So that was... One very exciting, very exciting uh, discussion. That is, yes. And the other is <clears throat> studying the landing area in the region of the Apollo 11 landing site. There's a crater there called Archimedes. And while okay, studying yes. lunar right. orbiter photos of Archimedes, mm -hmm. I saw what appears to be one of these entrances. It's uh, It's not a crater. It's not a dome. I would call it a gateway. It looks like a rectangular porthole on a sl slant uh, on a slant uh, angle. If you had huh. a door that slanted back, <clears throat> okay, I would you know at about oh I would say fifty degrees to sixty degrees and the rectangle How big are we still there. About? Yeah, well in the area of the crater Archimedes. Um, I had seen this one many, many years ago, but I came across it again. But now, this is now 10 years later, so my knowledge of the uh, latitude and longitude of the moons and uh, uh, those coordinates is, is much better than it was then. So I was able to start uh, really rummaging through all the lunar orbiter photographs and, in addition, the Russian landers, the Luna, Luna 9 to Luna 17, the Zond landers. See, the Russians really were the first on the moon. You know, we applaud ourselves and pat ourselves on the back for being the first men to land on the moon. The Russians right. landed their probes on the moon years before we were right. able to. And they were the ones that gave us the first look at the far side of the moon, that used to be called the dark side of the moon, and right. shocked the world by revealing... Uh, something that looked like it was a totally different planet. If you look at the dark side or so far side of the moon, and you look at the uh, the near side of the moon, you wouldn't think that you're talking about the same planetoid. You know, <laughs> so radically different. So the Russians were the first to give us those glimpses, and I want to say something about the Russian photographs of those times. They were photographs that were taken on the moon, onto photographic film, and developed on the moon, kind of like a Polaroid, and then televi televised. They used television to, to beam it back. And uh, they they were able to compose very raw-looking,
looking images. But I went back into those images, you know, and as dark and as um, opaque at times that they are, I was able to enhance those photographs. And I'll tell you, those photographs are better than anything on the Clementine website. I think the Clementine uh, website is absolute, pardon the expression, crap. Clementine crap. <laughs> it's bogus. I agree. There yes. is, it, it's like a black globe, and they have you play around with your mouse and try to, you know, zoom up on things. You can't see darn things. It's, total, it's totally degraded. I think it's a joke. So for my research, I rely on uh, Luna, Russian Luna photographs, Russian Zond photographs, all the Apollos, the Mariners. That's when we were getting uh, the real information. And I keep going back to those. So now the intriguing thing about this is that, you know, when you find something like this, NASA will often say, oh, that's a trick of light, you know, and shadow. So in order to prove the point, you have to find more than one photo showing the same object in, in, in a constant, you know, relatively constant shape. So the fortunate thing for me is uh, that I found a second photograph of the same region of this apparent uh, gateway at, uh, near the region of... Uh, Crater Archimedes, in addition to having uh, found really good uh, lunar orbiter photos of these domes that do exist in the northwest region of, of the Mare Imbrium, uh, the Sea of Rains. So there are these double domes there. Now, if you if you really studied your Apollo missions, you know, as I have, I have all the mission, uh, the manager's uh, briefing documents. DVDs that NASA produced, and I study these things and I listen to trans, uh, transmissions. And some of the most interesting transmissions were the overflights of the, the, the Capcom, the guy that stayed alone upstairs in the capsule, hoping that his friends would come up back up from the surface. He had a lot right. of time to observe things. So, yes. in some of the observations described partially collapsed domes. Hmm. So that's very intriguing. He said you can see yes. this looks like a part. You can see through it. You can see through it into the the crater under it, and it right. looks like a partially collapsed dome. And some of the material has been thrown out in the ejecta blanket. An ejecta blanket is the debris that is spread around the crater or an area of the moon right. that's been struck by an object. So uh, these are intriguing uh, comments. And I think I did mention to you, Angel, that one of the most fascinating transmissions are the voice recorders. See, the cockpit recorders that we all hear about in every airplane crash that occurs now, they're trying to recover the so-called black box. Hello? Because yeah. I heard a click. So I wanted to know we're still connected. So that's, that's, just, uh, that's them. That's just the yeah. big brother listening. In, that's all. <laughs> the, the so-called black box right. was developed by NASA for the Apollo flights. It's the um, the voice uh, tape recorder. Right. But NASA snuck it into the capsule without telling the astronauts. Right. Isn't yes, that neat? So this is, this is a very cool story. So NASA is afraid that if something happens on the far side of the moon when they're out of contact with uh, Earth because radio transmission 
is not possible. Once you go around the dark side of the moon, you had to wait until the, the spacecraft emerged back onto the near side of the moon before you could hear any transmission. So that was a, a blind zone, you know, blind. You can't see it, you can't hear them. So they said, well, what happens if they have a mishap? We'd never know whatever what happened. Let's put in a uh, voice uh, tape recorder in a loop that will record for just that amount of time. Uh, they're on the far side of the moon, and it'll be in a cartridge, and we'll be able to turn that cartridge on if, the, uh, if something happens to the astronauts and they come around and they're not communicating. We can turn on that tape and hear what happened. Makes perfect sense. Except they didn't tell the astronauts this. So the astronauts are on the far side of the moon thinking NASA can't hear them when these things start to happen. And the thing that I'm going to talk about to, to right now that always brings a smile to my face is called the music of the moon. Right. While they were traversing the other side of the moon, these sounds started to come in over their radios. Now, just as they're blacked out from Earth, from communicating with their radio transmissions, Likewise, they shouldn't be receiving any transmissions on the other side of the moon. But all of a sudden, they start traversing the other side of the moon, and Gene Cernan says, hey, do you guys hear that? And he's talking to, uh, to he's, he's in the, the descent capsule, and he's talking to, to the Capcom. And that's weird. Sounds like music. And uh, you, you guys hear that? And then uh, John Young says, yeah, I hear that. And then Tom Stafford says, uh, I hear something. But he, he, Stafford never wants to talk about it, right? So the mission goes on, and then Cernan says again, hey, what do you think of that, that music? Wasn't that strange? Like outer space, sounded like outer spacey music. Uh, what do you think of that? And uh, John Young says something like, oh, I don't know what to make of it. And uh, Tom Stafford seems like uh, like he doesn't really want to talk about this. So the transcript goes on. They're going around the moon. They're making their observations. The craft is descending to within eight miles of the moon because they were testing the landing modules to see that everything worked. The retro rockets we could abort the mission and come back up. So even though they didn't touch down, they came down to about eight miles. Then they, they came back up. So then uh, they go through the procedures. They go through the... Um, the uh, the lamb meeting up with uh, the command module, they do the docking maneuver, and then again when they're inside the sta- all three of them are back inside the uh, the command capsule. Cernan says again, "What do you make of that strange outer spacey music that, that that we heard? Did you hear it, Tom? I heard something. And so, what do you think we should do about this?" And <laughs> Tom Stafford says. He says, what do you think we should do about it? Should we tell the Houston dogs? I don't think we should say anything about it to them. So they didn't tell. But NASA was recording them. Now, these recordings were kept secret for, oh, I guess, 40, 40 years. Because, uh, well, almost 40 years. Because I didn't get to read this transcript until about two years ago. And ever since then, I've been looking for the archives. Now, they, NASA says that uh, they can't find... They can't find the original Apollo 11 landing tapes, uh, although they seem to have found some copies in Australia, and they can't find these uh, voice transcript uh, recorder tapes, although we have the uh, the transcript written out, the written out form. So it's quite a very intriguing, intriguing uh, 
commentary. Now, this is one, uh, you see, I know a lot of people in New York. Huh. It's, a, it's an amazing place, so you get a lot of information. And one of my contacts is a very old gentleman, an octogenarian now, who was with uh, Time magazine for uh, during the 60s and had, uh, you know, social contacts. So he would go to parties uh, thrown by George Clinton, for example. And while he was at one of these parties, they were, uh, Clinton was hosting one of the astronauts and, you know, lionizing the astronauts. <laughs> and my friend is very, very brash, and he asks questions which are kind of, you know, out of the ordinary. So while everyone's asking the astronauts about their trip to the moon, you know, extolling their heroism and their virtues and you know, their, their intellects, my friend very brashly says to, uh, I believe it was Aldrin, he said to him, um, Colonel, uh, may I ask you a question? Was there any was there any time in your trip to the moon where you felt scared, where you felt frightened? And he said there was a gap, almost a gasp in the in the party, the audience, that he would dare to insinuate that one of our astronauts might be have been frightened of anything. <laughs> so the astronaut was taken aback, but then he composed himself and he said, "Well, actually, there was one moment when I went around the far side of the moon." these very strange noises started coming up out of the radio. And for a moment, I might say I, I was concerned about that. And <laughs> that was it. So I'm telling you the, 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 the gist of the story in the transcripts. And I'm supporting it with this uh, anecdote uh, by a friend of mine whom I trust, who was a well-known reporter uh, for time at the time and uh, who had this chance encounter and asked this very forward, you know, brash question, and he got a very interesting answer. Well, there was one moment when I was going around the dark side or the far side of the moon when I heard strange noises coming over the radio. And, you know, what he's saying, that shouldn't have been there. Right. You know, he said, he, said he's not picking them up, obviously. Or if they were, right. they, were <laughs> they were keeping it to themselves. So it always, you know, it always blows my mind when, when an astronaut says something says something that kind of leads a little controversy to it because I'm sure there's more more to that story. It has to be oh, yeah. you know, it's very it's <laughs> interesting you say that because uh, Neil Armstrong and uh, Buzz Aldrin seem to speak in a crypto code. So right. does uh, Edgar yes. Mitchell. Edgar Mitchell, I know yes. personally. And uh, they go through really radical changes of personality. Yep. You know. Uh, when yes. you ask a certain question, boop, they snap. Uh, well, yes. Mitchell did on me. Oh, did he really? From a very philosophical, affable, professorial, you know, open gentleman to <laughs> snap. You know, I asked him, um, uh, Captain, All, uh, Captain Mitchell, you know, you're really lucky to have seen the surface of the moon. And, you know, you're just like, there are only 12 eyeballs that have ever gone to see it that close, could you describe for me the internal structure of the crater Eukert? And now the crater Eukert is of <laughs> great interest to me because it's that crater that has the, the equilateral triangle inside it. Right. And that when the sunlight shines into it, uh, a star of David appears. Hoagland spent a lot of time 
uh, right. analyzing yes, it the is. crater Euclid. It's almost like dead center of the moon. It's also a crater from which mysterious lights have been seen periodically from Earth observatories and usually described as a ruby red light emanating out of the crater Euclid. So I said to him, could you describe to me the internal structure of the crater Euclid? In that moment, like this, like I'm snapping my fingers, snap. He clicked his heels together, he straightened up at attention, he glared at me and he yelled, no! <laughs> like, like a captain yelling at a, you know, chicken ass uh, lieutenant, right? Like, Lieutenant chicken ass, you know. <laughs> or in the Navy, they say whale ass. Lieutenant whale ass, you are not to follow this line of questioning. And you see some stand, stand down from this line of questioning. He would just give me the vibe, right? And everybody, 200 people in the Explorers Club picked it up. It's like they went, wow, what did he say? And, but afterwards, uh, the people were coming over to me saying, yeah, good questions. That's what we all wanted to know. <laughs> I also I also rattled him a little bit when uh, he told this story about his uh, epiphany. He told the story about how he had that uh, peak experience, you know, a communication right. with the universal mind and became the, the, the uh, foundation, basically, of uh, the Noetic Institute that he founded. So he starts telling the story that on the way back from the moon, he had walked nine and a half hours on the moon. Edgar Mitchell has spent a longer, longer time on the moon than any other human being, nine hours of walking around. Yes, he has, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so he says, when I got back in the ship, all my, all my duties were done. So basically I had no job. I had nothing to do on the way home except sit there and wait for the landing. Uh, other than, you know, just incidental housekeeping chores inside the castle. So he starts telling the story how on the way back, uh, he's settling back to return to Earth, and he had his window. He was on one side of of the uh, capsule, and he had, each guy had a window, right? So he had right. this window. He says, and, I, and we came back. He says, now this is the important part. We came back in what we call rotisserie mode. That means that the capsule was spinning all the way back, and this was to help dissipate the heat. If we had a steady uh, attitude without the capsule spinning, the heat of the sun would overheat one side of the capsule and the other side would be totally frozen and we might have um, malfunctions. So in order to um, dis uh, dissipate the heat evenly, they spun the craft all the way. So he says, and as a result, as I looked out the window, I would see the stars, and I would see the sun, and I would see the stars, and then I would see the moon, and then I would see the stars, and I would see the earth, and I would see the sun. And he, it was almost hypnotic, as he was saying. And he said, and, this, and suddenly, as this was happening, I had this uh, experience of myself as a point of consciousness in this universal uh, universal consciousness and communicating with a higher intelligence and I saw the order of the universe but as I was saying he's describing this to, my, to me I said Lord this sounds to me like the Sufis you know the Sufis do spinning right mm. any object that is spun actually becomes the center of the universe the center of the universe mm. is arbitrary relative to spin you know so he's describing this constant rotation that's going on, and I said, oh, my Lord, this is, this is a spontaneous Kundalini uh, enlightenment. You know, first he's out there in weightlessness. He's away from Earth, 
and this the centrifugal forces are spinning and spinning and spinning and the way Sufis spin, the way Tai Chi spins, the way Bagua, there's a very esoteric, very uh, unusual, right. uh, you know, Bagua, it's very rarely spoken of, you know, people talk about yes. Kung Fu, people know Tai yes. Chi, Bagua and Xingyi are two very mm-hmm. rare martial arts forms, they're called internal yes. martial arts like Tai Chi. But the Bagua dancers, the spinners, they spin and, and they, they rotate very rapidly. And I feel it's all connected to uh, some kind of proto-Sufism, some ancient form of spinning that produced this uh, higher consciousness, elevation of consciousness. So I said to Mitchell, Mr. Mitchell, you know, this is fascinating. You know, I've always wanted to hear this story right from pardon the expression, from the horse's mouth, you know, which is you. <laughs> and uh, I am struck by this amazing thing that I, about the spin, and I told him about the spin. And all of a sudden, you know, it hit him, and he was like, wow, he was shocked at the idea that his enlightenment could have been the product of this rotary motion of the spacecraft, not just the Godhead jumping into the spaceship. Right. So I said to him, you know, I saw him, he was a little bit upset. So I said, <laughs> but please, let me say this. This in no way diminishes from the magnitude or the veracity or the importance of your experience, regardless of whether it was induced by this rotary motion or whether you, you know, any other way that it happened. Right. And he, he, he recovered graciously enough to finish the lecture. <laughs> but he put me on now the I understand why he yielded you. Pardon? Well, now I can't yeah. understand why he yelled at you. <laughs> you know, I have a, I have a habit of being very direct <laughs> and very honest in a conversation. You know, I take my hits too. <laughs> no kidding, no kidding. And Edgar Mitchell of all people, man. Oh he, yeah, but we've become I've friends, seen him you know? in interviews. He's a tough dude. He's, uh, he's yeah, tough, yeah. Know. Well, he's you thought he was, you know, in the Air Force. You thought he was, you know, military guy. You know. Maybe all kinds, you know. Yeah, you can definitely yeah. tell. It, 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 you know, but you know, his story is is amazing. What he's uh, come out and said public publicly. Uh, but you know, have you ever done any research into DMT? Because a lot of the stories that a lot of people are you know are speaking about yeah, um, sure. have sure been uh, similar experiences as people that have done DMT. Like for example, they claim uh, a lot of folks who've done DMT claim that they've uh, they see little gray aliens. With mm-hmm. little hats on, uh, yep. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yep. Yes. Oh, I'm sure. Well, the DMT molecule is is is, is a miraculous thing, and uh, you know, uh, Graham Hancock dedicated a, a huge book. Yes. Dimensions, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. to the subject of the spirit molecule, and I believe I believe they're on the right track. Meditation, uh, centering, and um, correct breathing will seem to to produce that. And when a person experiences that naturally in uh, their, bio, their brain chemistry, a uh, flash of light comes, communication with a higher intelligence. And, and folks, there is a higher intelligence than us. You know, There's a higher intelligence than you there listening to me and a higher intelligence than me here talking to you. And that intelligence is what I call the master of the house. The master right. of the house is the one in you who never sleeps. <clears throat> He's always monitoring your heartbeat, your blood pressure, um, all your metaboli- uh, metabolism, all your functions, and he's always guarding you. It's that 
that uh, consciousness that when danger may approach your side before it arrives, you wake up. Something says, hey, something's around. You better wake up. You know, that's the faculty that Tai Chi puts you in touch with. And right. it's a very humbling experience to surrender, to surrender your ego and to find yourself. So right. I think all of us have that opportunity, and if we are receptive uh, to it, it comes to us uh, more than once in life. You know, it's funny. <clears throat> People are so skeptical and uh, materialistic and atheistic, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. I don't believe in anything. But it's amazing how, in a crisis, when something really <laughs> critical happens, even the atheist will go, "Oh my God!" Yes. You know, people will go, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. If you don't believe in him, why did you say, "Oh my God"? You know. Right. So. Anyway. Uh, I was going to say something more about, oh, yes, Edgar Mitchell. So we become acquainted. He knows who I am. I know who he is. We exchange emails and, and whatnot. So I hear that he's going to appear in uh, in British Columbia. And I have a friend there who's a, a detective, and she's worked with me in a few cases. And some of them are missing persons and other things like UFOs. So she says, uh, I said, Edgar Mitchell's going to be in B.C. And she says, oh, I have to go see him. I said, are you going to go see him? Really? Wonderful. Would you ask him a question for me? And the question was this, what's weird about Weird Crater? One of the things I found in the Apollo mission uh, reports was that Apollo 14 was landing in this area called Cone Crater, but there's another right. crater there that they had a little thumbnail picture of it, and it was called Weird Crater. Just like, man, you're weird, kind of weird crater. Right. So I'm like, wow, that's a strange name, you know? I don't right. think there was a Professor Weird, you know? <laughs> Any <laughs> things after, you know, um, famous astronomers. You know, there's a, there's a crater named after Orson Welles on Mars. And, but I never right. heard of a Professor Weird, you know? And as I looked <laughs> at this little thumbnail, I thought, that this is a weird crater because it's a crater with an arrowhead pointing in it. And it was really too small and in a book, you know, to really allow But it was distinctly like an arrow head pointing north or something. So my friend's going to go see Edgar Mitchell. And I said, hey, Leanne, when you t if you get a chance, ask him a question. Tell him it's from me. And uh, tell him I asked, what's weird about Weird Crater? <clears throat> so she gets up there. She wrote back, she says, I raised my hand. I told him I had a question from Robert Morningstar. And he says, oh, Robert Morningstar, we're friends, you know, on a first-name first basis. Said, Robert, what is he <laughs> she says, what's weird about Weird Crater? And uh, she took him aback a, a little bit. But here's what's weird about Weird Crater. After years of searching, I found a photograph in the uh, Apollo 14 landing uh, charts, they had landing charts with map overlays with the grids. There was a weird crater. You know what's weird about it? This crater is formed by three impacts. Oh, my. All of exactly the same diameter. Oh, wow. In a crater. Three. That's amazing. You know, it's like, the, you know, if you, um, if you went to the battlefields, if you went to the battlefields of World, World War II, you could find a lot of craters that were all the same diameter, you know, from right. mortars of the same magnitude or cannon fire or artillery. Right. But when you're talking about impacts on the moon, you know, 
meteors don't all come in right. like eighty millimeter shot. But it's like that. If you saw artillery land in one cluster, all in the same diameter, you'd say, hey, these were not three meteors of exactly the same size. Now, right. here's another mystery of the moon, and it's the mystery of the doublets. That's what they're called, doublets, because belted all around the moon, around the equator, you find sets of two craters. Right, I've seen that, yes. All right, doublet, 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 and so on. And that doesn't happen in nature, really. Right. It happens in artillery. It happens with the USS Missouri firing at 16-inch guns at the same time that three giant projectiles of the same magnitude will land and make three craters of the same size. Which brings me now back to mythology and uh, the story in the Mahabharata about the battle between the people of the earth and the people of the moon in ancient times. You know, the Mahabharata is the history of India. Yes, yeah. And that tells a story of uh, a a war that occurred between the people of the earth and the people of the moon. So, and you know about mythology, when we talk about mythology, people think that mythologies are are fables or or, uh, fairy tales. But Joseph Campbell had a very interesting definition of mythology, which he voiced through the mouth of a third grader. Third grade class was asked by the teacher, does anybody here know what a myth is? And Johnny raised his hand, and she was surprised. Johnny, do you know what a myth is? And Johnny said, yes, a myth is something that's true on the inside, but not on the outside. So that is a very wise uh, idea, you know, to be voiced by a three, three, third grader. But right. basically, if you read The Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock, he gets into this subject about fables, legends, myths being uh, carriers for important information. By simplifying, right. encoding the, 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 the message in a, in a very simple form, you also ensure against corruption of the message. So okay. he, he then goes on to analyze several myths from around the world and show you that the same number pattern is being transmitted through the myth. And so um, it's important to study myths. And when we're talking about Mahabharata, we're not talking about myths. We're talking when we say myths about Mahabharata, we're just talking about conceit, the conceit of the modern Western mind to uh, denigrate as lower and less intelligent all of these antecedent civilizations that that uh, sprang, rose, and uh, fell before us. Although India can hardly be called a falling civilization, you know with nearly a billion people on the planet still going strong. Uh, what, are the, what are the odds that uh, all civilization, uh, as we know it, did come from uh, the heavens and that the moon played a big part of it and the uh, story of India is actually uh, accurate telling of the past? I mean, that, I that would be an interesting, that'd be an interesting uh, fact if it became a fact, if you know, we find out that that's really you know, how things were. Well, you know something? Let's keep, let's keep an eye on India this year because... About two years ago, 
some Indian scientists made had a press conference and they said they'd made some remarkable remarkable discovery discovery uh, but that they were prohibited from giving the full details of the discovery by international agreements until the year 2012, which is this year. Hmm. And the, right. the story, the background on this was that during her uh, tenure as prime minister, Indira Gandhi gathered a convention of India's top scientists, and she took them aside and said, listen, we know that our history, the Mahabharata, is history and not myth. The Westerners right. like to look down upon our history and call it myth and legend and fable. But we know it's our history. And I am certain that within the Sanskrit uh, writings, the Upanishads, the Mahabharata, there is secret scientific information, and I would like you all to start rereading it in the hopes of recovering that knowledge. And I believe that and that was the story that was told, that this was the result of such a search. And we may see something coming from India, besides the wonderful information that came from India last year about the water on the moon, which gets us back to all the lying that NASA does about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Never a straight answer. <laughs> well, that's right, never a straight answer. So here's, here, here's uh, the scoop. On, on the moon. Last August, I published on UFO Digest uh, a report on the discovery of water on the moon by a group of geologists at the University of Tennessee. The, U the University of Tennessee had gotten from NASA samples, lunar rock samples that were brought back by Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14. They brought, a, they brought back about 800 pounds of rock and hmm. a couple of other things so I think that were not rocks. But we'll get, they'll get that on another show. Right now we're talking about the rocks. So NASA okay. had these rocks for years and years and years, but they didn't let anybody really do heavy-duty studies outside of NASA um, right. in universities. But finally they gave up samples to University of Tennessee. And lo and behold, University of Tennessee finds limestone all over the place. And limestone right. can only be formed in water. So they went on to say that everything that they've uh, studied in the samples indicates that water is ubiquitous on the moon. Ubiquitous is a wonderful word. It means everywhere. It's everywhere. Right. So at the same time, okay, so I put out this story because nobody was picking it up in the media. So I sent it to Fox News. They mentioned it a little bit, but everything was, you know, shut down on University of Tennessee getting first dibs on the discovery. So it turns out that uh, the Chandra uh, satellite from India was orbiting the moon and doing uh, readings all over the moon. And a couple of months later, I think August is when I published the uh, University of Tennessee report, but November or so, October, November was when Chandra made the report that the moon is wet all over the surface. The moon is wet. That's right. But that yes. didn't get a lot of play in the media no. until, and still didn't get a lot of play because they were waiting for NASA to do their lacrosse, L-cross crashing of their satellite uh, rocket. Right. 
with the explosion into the crater to make it spray mm-hmm. up and then fly mm-hmm. the second part of the craft through the cloud to take measurements to see if there was water there. Water there. Right. So they got, you know, University of Tennessee could have told them there was water everywhere. And the Chandra satellite told them that they were, could have they has water all over the moon. The moon is wet, but they had to go through their big show of uh, crashing uh, uh, a huge rocket. It's like bombing the moon to create right. this spray so that you could fly the next uh, part of the probe through. And all of a sudden, oh yeah, there's enough water in the craters down at the south pole of the moon for us to have a colony down there. Well, what about the lakes on the far side of the moon, I would say? I mean, I really am a little bit sarcastic with NASA. I'm fed up with them. When I saw Mars in 2003 through a telescope, and its closest approach to Earth in 60,000 years, all of the NASA lies came to light because I saw Mars with a brilliant air glow. I could see this atmosphere. I could see weather. I could see an aurora. It was not an aurora borealis, but an aurora australo-borealis. Huge arcs of electric plasma from the northern mm-hmm. hemisphere to the southern hemisphere. Co- uh, rolls of clouds that looked about 2,000 miles long. And the eye of Mars, this black spot that is it's so deep that the sunlight doesn't hit the bottom of it until 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at noon. And it looks like a giant eyeball. And the next day I saw the photograph that NASA said was taken by Hubble. My friend, that was the the last straw, you might say. Hmm. The photo they produced on August 28th that was purportedly taken by Hubble looked like a little cartoon to me compared to what I'd seen with my eyeballs Mm -hmm. through a 128X uh, super plaza lens. I saw a living dynamic smoking planet smoking in the sense that vapors were still coming out of the Hellas Basin that looked like a fresh uh, asteroid impact and NASA rendered a cartoon they took out the atmosphere, they took out the air glow, they took out the weather and only now in the recent recent years have they given us fuzzy pictures to show the cloud formations and the weather. You know I have seen on the internet a few pictures where it shows clearly that the Mars has a blue atmosphere which only it happens when there's sky. water. Yeah, there's a blue yep. sky. It has a that blue only happens sky. with water, folks. Yeah, the water. Oh, Angel, I'm so glad you said this. I captured a NASA transmission last uh, July. July 28th, Wegerly was the last um, space shuttle landing. Remember it mm-hmm. for the last landing? Right. So I stayed up all night videotaping that fantastic event. I... Ca- I um, so I threw a tape in there, recorded the whole thing, and, uh, you know, it was really that last uh, Atlantis mission, to see it coming uh, on a cable cast. I have the NASA cable channel. So to mm-hmm. see that coming live from the space station and the space shuttle and what, what they did, these maneuvers that they did, literally it was 2001, a space odyssey, mm-hmm. really come home. Everything that we saw in that movie, they did in real life. They rotated the space station 90 degrees. The space shuttle did an orbit of the space station, like it's called an inside loop. If an airplane goes hmm. starts climbing and it right. goes upside down and comes around, they did an inside right, right. loop 
uh, around the space station, and I had the tape in the machine. And two days later, uh, I chanced on the NASA channel again, and it, this time it was about Mars. So anytime I hear something about Mars, I start paying attention, and I threw the tape. The tape was in there. I threw it in again, uh, and we started uh, uh, recording. And within three minutes of it, they start to show photos and videos taken by the rovers, a whole montage of them. Some are the uh, Mars orbiter photographs from the surf uh, from uh, from space, and others were uh, juxtapositions and combinations, montages of the the different rovers. And all of a sudden, I start to see these big wet splotches depicted on my on my uh, high definition TV, and I'm like, man, that looks wet. That looks like Jones Beach, and, and it's panning, and it's panning, and it's getting wetter, and the, and the globs, the ponds are getting bigger. And then at the last second in the corner, I saw waves rolling on to a beach. My friend, I'm not kidding. I, saw, I have a videotape of waves rolling onto a beach on Mars. Now, the curious hmm. thing about these waves is that, yes, my eye sees their waves, but they're not propagating at the same speed or rate as we would right. expect waves on Earth. But it is exactly right. what I would expect on a planet that has half the gravity and a totally different atmospheric pressure. Well, we, we think it has half the gravity because that's what they tell us, but what if it well, doesn't? Right. What if... That's right. I'm glad you're saying this. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think a lot of uh, the the meteorology that they've given us, mm -hmm. is, you know, here's, here's one example. You know, it doesn't stand up to logic. It doesn't stand up to reason what they say. They say that the atmosphere is, is so thin, you know, on right. Mars that we would basically explode, you know, like... Uh, yeah. Like, uh, like a total recall. Yes. <laughs> right. Yet, they tell us that uh, there are winds that reach 200 miles an hour on Mars and that there are dust devils uh, spinning around. And some of them thought that these dust devils were spinning over the over the rovers and cleaning off their batteries, you know, when they were right. running for far longer than they expected. And then there is, I mentioned earlier, that having seen the Hellas Basin through a 128-power uh, telescope in uh, 2003, and I saw the vapors coming out of the Hellas Basin um, as if it, it looked like a, an asteroid had just hit it. You know, the smoke, it, uh, CO2, you know, take some dry right. ice and throw it into a bunch of a glass of water. You'll see what I was seeing right. over here on Mars, but I had no explanation for why, how that could be happening. It was a bit frightening. The next day, NASA announced that the Hellas Basin was an ocean or a sea of uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, that was trapped in there by planetary winds, meaning that the winds over the surface of the crater or the basin, it is an impact crater, but they call it the Hellas Basin, um, is, is moving so fast that it's creating a differential air pressure that's keeping a lid on the vapors in the Hellas Basin and keeping them in that state of fog all the time. So if the atmosphere is so thin, how could the winds be so fast that they could trap like a 600-mile uh, area of vapors in 200-mile-an-hour winds? Wind occurs because of the compression of air molecules close to each other, each pushing on each other, 
to accelerate each other in, in, in air flows. Convection causes it. Um, cold condenses air and makes it thicker. That's why we have these incredible Alberta clippers. So how is it possible if the atmosphere is so thin for it to reach 200 miles an hour? I'll tell you, it's not possible. Hmm. One right. of the two figures has to be wrong. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that this year they may come out with a little bit more, a little bit more. Now they're admitting water on Mars, and what I happened mm -hmm. to chance upon was somebody in NASA, what I call one, one of the good guys, leaking leaking uh, a little piece of tape with about three seconds of waves crashing on a beach. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. That should be interesting. That should be yeah. very interesting when that when that comes yeah. out. I made you know, it. I, 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 you <laughs> know, they, they, they did. No kidding. No, I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I found they, it. You know what? We should do there's a campaign in, to name it Morningstar Beach. Yeah, there's one on the. I'm joking because for our friends in the Virgin Islands, the Virgin Islands has a place called Morningstar Beach. I've never been there, but everyone who goes there tells me about it. So <laughs> I see all these waves crashing on a beach on Mars. I tell you, I'll name it. Morningstar. Oh man, I'm dying to see that footage. Whenever they release that, up. Yeah, amazing. I'm hoping it's soon to transfer it from tape uh, to digital, and and I will put it on YouTube for all the world to see. Oh, man, I, please send me a link to that as soon as you put it up. You know, author C. Clarke, uh, who is one of the most celebrated science fiction authors of all times, uh, once said that he is fairly convinced that we've discovered life on Mars. And he said there are some incredible photographs uh, from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, which to him was pretty convincing proof of the existence mm -hmm. of large life forms yeah. on Mars. Yeah. Uh, I'm just that's working on an incredible one thing for him trees. to say. I'm working on one of trees. I mean, trees on Mars. Joseph Skipper, right. if people will Google the name Joseph Skipper, S-K-I-P-P-E-R, and go to his website on Mars, you will see this man has dedicated like, the last 20 years of his life to the same, the same work that we do. But mm -hmm. Joseph concentrates on Mars, and he has found the most amazing compilation of photographs which shows uh, bushes, trees, uh, vegetation, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I hardly, heartly, heartily recommend Joseph Skipper's <laughs> website, Mars Anomalies, I believe it's called, Mars Anomalies blog, and so um, I, like, I like to give credit where credit is due, because we're all in this together, everyone is mining, you know, mining for the truth, and uh, Joseph Skipper, is, uh, I admire his work very much. As I do Ken Johnson. Ken Johnson has released a tremendous number of uh, photographs from NASA, but he was ordered to uh, to destroy. They were destroying uh, photographs which uh, indicated architecture and ruins and uh, manufactured objects could be hmm. found on the moon. That's amazing. Manufactured, yeah, you know, I remember seeing yeah, uh, Richard Hoagland. Yeah, manufactured object from a natural. I remember watching a Richard Hoagland video back in the from the '90s where he was talking about the moon and how one of the landers, uh, which disappeared, uh, as he was looking at photograph. He thought he literally found it on top of what looked like a domed uh, structure, almost like a biodome structure mm -hmm. on the moon. Uh, mm -hmm. Has NASA ever talked about that at all? 
uh, about the possibility of that actually being the lander. Has it, any anybody ever spoken about that again? About the about what? The, that lander that uh, the, it, well, there was a lander that uh, Hoagland uh, talked about that it landed literally splat on the on the moon, but landed on what looked like to be a biodome or some sort. I, I don't know if you remember that. That's you're talking about surveyor. Yeah, that's, surveyor. That's very unusual. I have a copy of that photo. It's a very unusual photograph. Uh, it's hard to tell whether NASA is tricking us by reversing. That's one of their nice little tricks, you know. They'll take a photograph right. and show you the negative and let you figure out whether you're seeing a negative or a positive. But the photo you're talking about is a surveyor photograph taken of a crater in its vicinity, and uh, it seems like light is emanating, coming out of the crater, illuminating right. uh, what... Hoagland, uh, since I know exactly what you're talking about, Hoagland claims <laughs> that what is illuminate it's illuminating a glass, a dome that's partially collapsed, and right. the refraction of the light by material over the crater is the only explanation for the way the light is being dispersed and refracted um, in the photograph, and also in that same photograph. There's a blacked out object in the center of all the light. It looks like a meteor or uh, an asteroid hovering over the crater, being illuminated from below, but the, the object is absolutely pitch black as if it's been blacked out. It's a very unusual photograph. Thanks for reminding me of it. Yeah, that, that was one of my favorite uh, Richard Hoagland specials. Uh, you know, I've always been fascinated with them, but I just wanted to ask you if you knew a little bit more about that. You know, Stefano from Facebook wants to uh, ask you if you know anything about the Tether incident and uh, if you're familiar with that at all. And, oh, yes. Uh, yes. The folks was... who've debunked it since, uh, you know, it's gone viral. I don't think it's been debunked, honestly. I would recommend to everyone who's interested in the Tether incident uh, the David Sereda's work on it, S-E-R-E-D-A, David Sereda. This is mm-hmm. a gentleman that's really a bright, bright person and very eloquent and uh, a hardworking fellow. And he does analysis of the UFO that's seen passing behind the tether and uh, the glow and the... He does remarkable work analyzing the frequency of, the, the I guess, the oscillations that are seen in this craft. And so, yeah, the tether... The tether was an experiment uh, run by NASA where the idea was to have um, green energy coming from outer space. Basically, the idea was to drop a really long 12-mile 12 mile, 12 long wire uh, down into to dip it into the atmosphere and to drag it along the atmosphere to see if they could generate electricity in the wire by induction that would create uh, a current that would create a power source for it possibly to be beamed down to Earth to be a source of electricity or energy in the future. Well, for some reason, uh, NASA didn't get it all right, and as they were letting out the tether, it broke as loose. As usual. Right. And it broke loose and started free-floating away, and when it free-floated away a bunch of miles, all of a sudden it became, became surrounded by globes, orbs, and uh, UFOs. 
and the U NASA calls it, uh, says that it's uh, ice particles floating around, but the ice particles are changing directions, going this way, going that way, turning, coming back, and uh, they shouldn't be doing that. So NASA tries to explain them as uh, a result of um, the maneuvering rockets that are in front on the nose of a space shuttle, that when they blast to adjust the attitude of the shuttle, that they were breaking off uh, particles of ice that were floating by the camera, and that was what the UFOs were. But that, that story doesn't wash. Look at the tape for yourself. Look at the distances. Yeah. Look at the, 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 um, the tether is uh, 10 miles away. And you can see it, and then you see the UFO passing, and the UFO passes right. behind it, not in front of it. So it's yes. not a nice particle. You know, it's amazing how NASA tries to get away with seeing their ice particles. You know, they did make a, a kind of a convincing argument, I will say, because I saw you know the video on YouTube uh, where they kind of uh, display how the effect could happen, uh, just because you can you know get an effect you know to look similar to what you're seeing on the video doesn't mean that's exactly what you're seeing on the video. Uh, it's an amazing amount of objects. I mean, wouldn't it be more dangerous if these were ice particles just floating around that close to the shuttle? Well, it all depends on the relative speed. If they're moving at the same speed as the shuttle... Some of them are going pretty they... fast. Yeah, that's why I said I don't think they were <laughs> ice particles. You know, how can it... You know, if it's coming from the shuttle, uh, it, if it's breaking off from the shuttle... It should just drift around and at the same speed as the shuttle. If it's uh, sprayed by the by the uh, maneuvering rocket, uh, I don't know if people know what the maneuvering rockets are. The space shuttle had uh, on the nose; it had rockets to the side and right. up and down, so they could adjust the nose by blasting it. When you see it happen, actually, it's a pretty impressive little thing. It's very rarely shown. But when the uh, astronauts fired those maneuvering rockets, the space shuttle looked like a whale. You know how when a whale breaches and blasts that yes. uh, the, the spray? That's what the shuttle looked like. And they would do that. So uh, they're claiming that those, those forces were responsible for all the movements of the purported ice particles. There's another very funny uh, explanation they came up with, which comes back to the Apollo 10 mission that we were discussing earlier, the music of the moon mission. When right. they went on the far side of the moon, they took three pictures, three photographs of a very strange object. I published it uh, New Year's Day, uh, UFO Digest, New Year's Day 2010, and it's called the Sentinel. And I named it the Sentinel in honor of Arthur C. Clarke, who said we would fly, find a monolith on the moon. Right. The story of 2001: A Space Odyssey right, came from yes. a short story that Arthur C. Clarke wrote back in the 1950s. Right. But he didn't call it 2001: A Space Odyssey. He called it the Sentinel. Right. So the yeah, original name for the monolith was the Sentinel. So in honor of Arthur C. Clarke, I named it that, the Sentinel. And it looks well. It looks like quite a, a, a unusual number of things. It looks like the bow of a ship, for one, if you want to look at it one way. But for me, it was the oddest thing that it really looks like a sculpture of Africa. It's hmm. very unusual. And they claim that it was That's a piece it. of yes. mylar. 
they claimed the NASA's explanation was they claimed it was a piece of mylar that floated off the uh, the, uh, the lunar module when uh, when they were docking. And there's no, you know, if you know what mylar is, you you know how bogus that explanation uh, NASA came up with. The geometry of it and the the different aspects of it is a three-dimensional object it's it's almost literally if you were to envision the the bow of the titanic coming on you and you're in the water v-shape like that tapering down to to the water it's a very remarkable thing now richard hoagland discovered this you know there are a lot of times independent people discover the same thing and they call it different things. I called it the Sentinel. <laughs> and I sent it to Richard Hoagland. He said, oh, yeah, I discovered, we discovered that back in 1996, and we showed it in Phoenix. We called it the Battleship. <laughs> so, you know, I said to myself, the bow of the Titanic. So I just talked to him. He said, oh, yeah, we called it the Battleship. So, you know, great minds think alike. I just yes. didn't put guns on my ship. So anyway, that that's that. But Hoagland said a very interesting thing to me. He said, that that object is not in, it's not floating in space. It's attached to the ground. I said, what? It looks like it's in space. He said, no, they doctored the photograph. That's one of those towers that we're talking about, miles and miles and miles high that are huh. on the far side of the moon. Now, the first time that I heard Richard Hoagland talk to me about glass towers two miles high on the moon, I thought it was kind of as crazy as you probably think is hearing it from me. But then over the years of studying and learning, I realized, you know, glass would be the perfect building material to use on the right. moon because yes, it would. it's all over the place. Right. Secondly, let's not make the mistake of judging architecture on the moon by what we see here on Earth. Right. The moon has one-sixth the gravity and has if you believe NASA, absolutely no atmosphere. So building a two-mile glass structure on the moon would not be as far-fetched. All right. Right. It it hasn't hasn't got to deal with the wind or weather, and it wouldn't have to deal with six times the gravity, and you would have an abundance of the material, glass, silicates, to manufacture something like that. So, again, logically... You know, we are conditioned to be skeptical and to be disbelieving. And like I said to myself, you know, this is nuts. You know, (laughs) literally myself, I said, this is crazy. Because my cousin told me about it first, and then he introduced me to Hoagland. My cousin is an ex-U.S. Navy aviator and uh, navigator, and he told me about these glass towers on the moon. And I said, oh, man, this is nutty. And I'll introduce you to Richard. So I got to know Richard, and we became really good friends. I would say I would say we became brothers from 1993 till 1997 when he moved away from New York City. He was in Hoboken, you know, about 20 minutes from me. We used to see each mm-hmm. other, talk every day, and uh, shared a lot of uh, complementary knowledge. And what I mean by that is complementary is in mathematics. You know, the missing pieces they fit together to mm-hmm. create a whole. So. You know, at first I was shocked by that, and then I saw photographs, and then I saw the castle, and then I started enhancing some of the photographs that uh, Richard and uh, Dr. Bruce Cornett were sharing with me. And I started to find things like the the famous photograph of uh, an astronaut. It's on Richard's website, 
but I was the first one to notice the reflection in the glass. If you look at this photograph taken of uh, from Apollo 14, uh, you see the photograph of the astronaut, and in his his mask, you can see a reflection of the other astronauts who who's taking the photograph. But right. if you look to the upper right corner of his plexiglass mask, mm -hmm. you see something in, hanging in in space or in the sky that right. can't possibly be their lander. Right. And then so and there's some really cool things that that I can do with with um, imaging. For example, I can take an image that is like uh, re let's say this this image reflected on a curved surface. You can take that and flatten it out. You know, to see what it would be like if right. if you were seeing it not on reflected on the curve. You know, you can un you can unfold the curve of the glass, so it looks like some object was hovering over and behind them, as um, as one of the astronauts was taking a picture of the other. So that would have been uh, if it was Apollo 14. It would have been uh, John uh, Alan Shepard and uh, Edgar Mitchell. And then there's the castle, which is remarkable. There's a, it's a photograph of uh, an area called the Manilius Crater, uh, mm. the northern area of the moon. Mm -hmm. And it's really dark. The moon, you can see the the Terminator. You can see light on one side, and one side of the moon right. is still in light. The other, and then it's the light, uh, the, the Terminator, light and darkness. And then you see everything fading into the black. And then on the right side, you see something that looks like the top of the Empire State Building. <laughs> Still illuminated in sunlight. So Hoagland said, for you to see that, that thing, that has to be right. over two miles high. Because yes. of the angle of the sun, you know, the relative position of the moon, and the Terminator. For that thing to to still be catching light on the dark side... You know, not dark in the sense of where the night side of the moon is. That would have to be two and a half miles high. And it's you know, it's, you know, it's a good science stands. You know, you can't. You can't it's, argue. it's amazing how mainstream media doesn't uh, pick up on a lot of uh, the stuff that uh, that Hoagland's done over the years and a lot of stuff that he's talked about over the years, and really uh, give him a little bit more of uh, publicity. I mean, it's it's a shame that he doesn't get a, as much publicity as he should, because he's really come come out with some you know doozers you know in the last uh, decade and a half. I mean, doozies, I should say, in the last he's couple really decades. Perfect. You know, he's a smart let, me guy. You, let me tell you something. I have great respect, admiration, yes. and affection for Richard. He is a straight shooter. He's an honest man. Yeah, he, is. he cares about the nation. He cares about the public. He wants to share uh, what what he knows. And let me tell you something about him. He left New York at the end of 1997 because he thought something horrible was going to happen to New York. He thought New York was going <laughs> to be destroyed, you know, and he just had to leave mm -hmm. and go. He was heading down to New Mexico. He said, Robert, you know, I want you to be part of the team. You know, New York is finished. It's, uh, something terrible is going to happen here. And, um, you know, why don't you come down and be part of the team? I said, Richard, you know, I've lived, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I've lived here all my life. My family is here. My friends are here. And to be honest with you, Richard, I wouldn't want to live a world, in a world where there was no New York. You know, so if it goes, I'm going with it because these are the people I love. And so that ended that conversation. 
and he was a little bit sullen. You know, he, you know, Richard doesn't like to be, you know, rebuffed. So he went off, yes. and uh, I'm thinking, you know, that's really wild. He thinks, you know, some cataclysm, some asteroid or something, a meteor is going to hit New York. And, uh, well, I hope it gets still stay close in Mexico, right? So get this, yeah, he, he, uh, 97. I think what, he, he was close in, uh, in 9-11. Uh, you know, there was a and meteor. He was close but, uh, to that. Listen to how literally close. close he was. On yeah. January 3rd of 1998, an explosion happened at 22nd Street and 5th Avenue in New York City. An entire street collapsed. There was an explosion, there was a fire, there was a flood. The explosion, the flood, and the fire destroyed any evidence of what was the cause, and nobody to this day knows what caused that to happen. But here's huh. the curious thing. Besides Richard saying something bad was going to happen, you know, right after New Year's, you know, in, in New York. He had had me and a friend of ours named Gordon Much go down to 20th Street and 5th Avenue to take video of some underground stuff that was going on there. There were these giant uh, Con Edison trucks with spools of unbelievably heavy cables, you know, like bundled cables that I would say were about um, 5 inches to 6 inches in diameter truckloads of them with these things spooled and they were just feeding them down into a, a sewer opening and just you know miles of this stuff was going down and it was near this old navy store and richard felt that the old navy store and old navy is a code word for uh a, per a particular group that may be associated with the office of naval intelligence and that they send code through Televisions for people who understand how to read the code. It may be in a commercial, and very often um, it has uh, numbers associated with the hmm. 19.5 key. It's very, very. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, the more the more you pay attention to the things that Richard Hoagland talks about, oh, the more sense yeah. they start to make. Yeah, he always loses me when he when he starts talking about the 19.5 and he starts talking about all the math. He is a very yeah. smart individual to put all that together, let me tell you. Yeah, you have to love geometry, you know, because that's yes. the whole key to this is this is, this is the silent code. If right, no, but it makes sense. That's the language of the cosmos is math. You see Mathematics it. and geometry is, the, is the language of the cosmos. It makes perfect sense. Exactly. You know, one of the most ancient sayings is in creation, God geometrizes. And right. I believe, honestly, you know, when we talk about aliens... That if we ever have contact, uh, if we, you know, okay, if. Angel, you and I have had contact with aliens, right? Okay, so we can get yes. that out of the way. <laughs> so when we have contact with aliens, and they don't speak English, and they don't speak the common language, and if we have a new group that we have to contact that's not telepathic, the, the, the medium is going to be mathematics and geometry. And I worked right. out a, a very basic, simple example of how um, two points would begin a conversation with with an ET. You know, if he could see and he could draw, like we could see and we can draw. You, I could draw a dot and and say, dot is me, and I draw another dot, and the dot is him, and then he he and me, he or you, know, you and I, and then draw a line between them. There's connection, there's relationship, and then we put another dot, then there's other, and that's he, she, or it. 
and then we've got a triangle. And then from those those basic uh, components, point, line, point, line, and uh, triangle, we could go on to develop a mathematical geometric uh, code for communication, a cipher at first. And uh, that's how it would have to be. How how could we communicate? Let's say we met um, some kind of reptilian that uh, can't say the letter A, but he can go. <laughs> how how would you communicate? Uh, honestly, I, I made that, that joke because... Uh, met- get him a good copy of Follow Me to America and <laughs> hope that he learns how to read quick. <laughs> You know, what's that saying, Robert? If you don't learn from your past, you, you're doomed to repeat yeah, it. Yeah, he, he, those who do not study their, their history are doomed to repeat it. You know, it, we, I think we definitely should know our past, especially if it was a bad one. You know, for example, uh, you know, a lot of folks say that Mars looks like my dad. You know, th- these are just not, not NASA, for example, but other folks that I've heard say that, that Mars could have had a civilization in the past that maybe blew themselves out of existence. Hence, why there's so much radiation over the planet. Uh, you know, if we don't learn about our past from you know knowing what we should know, because the government knows a lot of this stuff, we might uh, repeat that scenario with the way we're going on this planet. Uh, Robert, listen, we have a phone call here. Uh, a caller wants to get in on four two five. You're on the air with Robert Morningstar. Hi, thanks for uh, taking my call. This is Heavenly Angel, and I What's wanted up, to Angel? ask Robert, how are you tonight? I'm fine, Thank Welcome. Everybody's doing good, good. Uh, my question is, do you think that people are going to panic more as um, December 21st closes in? Well, no. I, I think that uh, we're all going to be having a very good time uh party for the solstice. Uh, I don't expect the world to end. I think that this is a a big hype, like Y2K was. And yeah, that's what I believe, too, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I intend to be dancing on December 21st. <laughs> I don't really... <laughs> I mean, look, something's always going to happen, you know? Last year was a tsunami in Japan, and... Then we have, yeah. uh, you know, blitz of tornadoes. And, you know, that's the nature of the world. It, you know, it's not going to end, you know. Something will go Not on yet. Not yet, anyway. I'll see you on I think, the 22nd. I think part of the 2012 <laughs> myth is, is a meme to keep uh, the world in fear. And yeah. by exploiting our fear, they, they gain a certain, uh, a certain amount of psychological power over those right. who are in fear. But uh, I stay away from that. And as far as the Mayans and the prophecies, and who's going to... I, for one, am not ready to believe a bunch of bloodthirsty savages like that. Sorry. <laughs> That's the way I feel about it. All due respect to ancient civilizations, but, you know, me falling for the mythos of uh, some bloodthirsty human, uh, human-sacrificing human uh, civilization... I think that leaves a lot to be desired as far as uh, real wisdom is concerned. You know, I think they were a scared race. The Aztecs, if they were sacrificing, you know, 250,000 people a year to propitiate the gods. Right. You know, well, I don't be, believe that their calendar ends on that date anyway. No, it just starts again. Yeah, exactly. The wheel, the wheel doesn't stop rolling, you know. The wheel That's right. is a finite. It's got a limit. You know, you start... Infinity is beyond... Yeah, you start the clock oh. at 12 o'clock, it goes to 1, to 6, to set, to 9, and back to 12, and then what does it do? The wheel keeps turning, time keeps going. 
So I, I well, we're all we're all going to leave the planet one day anyway. Yes, as uh, Jim Morrison says, nobody gets out of here alive. Yes. <laughs> well, great show tonight. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you for your call. Thanks for coming. Pleasure Thank you for calling, Angel. Take care, sweetie. Good night, fellas. Bye. Good night. That's the beautiful heavenly angel. Thank you so much for calling. Yeah, I, I was stoned for a moment. I thought I wasn't sure whether she was addressing you as angel or saying. <laughs> now, Robert, remember on the show, I I am the jackal. I see. <laughs> but you know, getting in back to to what we were talking about here, uh, you know, about the moon, a little earlier, you know. If there is water in the moon, uh, you know, Newt Gingrich said recently that um, he was all for, you know, not only you know exploring possibilities of uh, colonizing the moon, but actually putting, you know, bases and facilities up there if he was elected. Uh, do you think that's a, a viable option considering the way the economy is right now? I think, um, I think it's an important concept. And, you know, I really didn't appreciate the way they came down on him. Like, uh, yeah, me know, neither. They, they came down on him like a UFO uh Nut. Yeah, 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 like a UFO. Let's be honest. That's what they call it. You know what? That's what they can do. The us, problem yeah. is this. If we don't, we're going to lose it. The, the Chinese right. are uh, on their way to the moon, and they have extensive plans to begin mining it, even though that's against right. international law. And just uh, yeah, earlier today, I came across something. I didn't really have a chance to, uh, to read it uh, in depth, but it said that the Russians are planning to send a man to the moon. It said Russians... Uh, huh. finally sending man to the moon. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. The moon is uh, is very important uh, to the survival of mankind. I really do believe that. And regarding the 2012 um, prophecies, if, if the world is going to fall into any uh, horrible uh, state, uh, the cataclysm is going to be caused by man, you know? I think right. the, you know the cataclysms that that the Earth unfold. It's part of the of a living planet. You know, it's like um, pardon the expression, but a uh, 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 dog shaking off fleas. You know, the hmm. earth or wet dog. I mean, it just dry itself. The Earth goes through its shudders and its uh, tumult, but humanity has always survived it. You know, we've survived ice ages. We've survived volcanic cataclysms. Uh, Siberia is a good example. You know, they survived the Tunguska impact. Humanity's right. uh, instinct is to survive, so I don't feel that uh, that we have anything to worry about in that regard this year. What I do worry right. about is a conflagration in the Middle East. Uh, you know, the tinderbox, mm -hmm. Iran, Israel, uh, going at it. That is something that uh, could cause uh, a, a global catastrophe. You know, one thing we can rule out, though, uh, you know, we can definitely rule out the Nibiru scenario or the Anunnaki, for example. I mean, we would have seen that by now, at least. I'm not, the, so, the, sure about the, I'm not so sure about the Planet X scenario. I came across um, a Ph.D. thesis from Cornell University about two months ago mm -hmm. uh, discussing uh, something that's very little known. The moon is wandering around. It's a, got some strange eccentricities in its orbit that are not explainable. Uh, they're so different that one of the uh, subjects or one of the explanations that this physicist from Cornell University entertained was the possibility of Nibiru and Planet X 
uh, having uh, now exerting a gravitational effect on the moon that's creating these eccentricities. And there are people, you know, for last um, for the last two years or so, I've been receiving photographs from all over the country, all over the United States and Canada. Uh, people taking photographs of the sky and uh, this blue blue object showing up. Some most of the people dismiss them as uh, lens flares, but um, I'm not so sure they're all lens flares. And these photographs were coming to me from North Carolina, from California, from Canada, and just people, and you know. So I do give a little bit of uh, I pay attention to some of those things, but even if we have that uh, passing passing by, I don't think it's an end of the world scenario. But you know, we would have seen it by now, I think. And, and besides, uh, I you know I'm not sure. Well, exactly not if it's coming from here. the south. You see, it's not if it's coming from the southern hemisphere, and this is what I've been. By now, though. Uh, oh, pardon me. By now, we really we, we still wouldn't see it. You think? Um. Well, if you think about how much, if it's coming from the south polar regions, we don't get to see that unless you're down in Argentina or something. Hmm. Chile. That's a good point. You know, you know that, that is a good point. Yeah, and I, and I've heard that that's really where the action is. I've heard about the Vatican Observatory. Look what's going on with uh, the Russians breaking through Lake Vostok. You mm. notice how there hasn't been a peep about it since they did it? Very true, yeah. They, they finally drilled 30 years. I thought they must have been drilling for decades, and I heard they were drilling for 30 years to bore through two and a half miles of ice to get to this lake. And they were very bright about it, how they did it. They... They went in, they took a sample, and they sealed it without contaminating it. Um, Russians are very smart cookies. Diabolical cookies, but smart <laughs> cookies nonetheless. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, indeed, they, they were, and they are. They what was it we were going to talk about the moon? <laughs> was it the moon? Was it the moon that I was going to say something about? Uh, I mentioned you. you know, it's it's funny how we you know we always focus on the moon and Mars, but it, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of activity on other planets. Uh, you know we don't hear much about like Venus oh, or, sure. or other let's planets, and I'm pretty subject. sure there's stuff happening all over the place. Oh, let me talk. Galaxy. Let's talk about Saturn. Okay? I read um, a, a report uh, that was one of the MJ12 papers, uh, maybe about uh, seven years ago. I had a huge collection that came from John Greenwald's Black Vault, original mm -hmm. Black Vault. Unfortunately, right. the drive crashed, but I'm fortunate enough to, to remember um, documents. And, um, oh my goodness, I think I'm having an interference flash right now. <laughs> oh no, here it is, here it is. No, no, Saturn, get back. Okay, this, part, this uh, article, uh, this uh, document was an MJ-12 document similar to the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit report that mentions John F. Kennedy as uh, one of the people to watch because he found out about Roswell. Well, oh, okay. the, the, the Project Sign uh, period went on mm -hmm. to try to find out where the flying saucers were coming from. So it said that they had enlisted astronomers around the world uh, at the major astronomical observatories to try to track the fleets of UFOs that were seen coming in because what was happening was they were observing motherships coming in and entering equatorial orbit. And from these motherships, the scout ships were being dropped and descending 
to surface and lower altitudes and touchdowns. And so they were watching the motherships, and they were able to track them. And the report came back that uh, the astronomers, like Donald Menzel, you know, the astronomer that was in the Robertson right, Commission yep. originally, uh, mm-hmm. they reported that they were able to track the fleet uh, of UFOs or flying saucers, as they said, and they said they were coming from the moon Titan, of, hmm. uh, of Saturn's moon Titan. Now, that's remarkable, because it what is, has yes. happened? In the last uh, couple of years, we landed the Huygens probe uh, on uh, Titan, and there's no other planetoid that's more like Earth, uh, with the exception of Mars, I would say, as far as terrain, oceans, mountains, geology, uh, formations, terrain, uh, than Titan. But Titan is a cold well, we would say a cold, dead moon uh, that's uh, about 162 degrees uh, below zero, has oceans of liquid methane, has a constant acid rain and uh, uh, and so on and so forth, you know, very harsh atmosphere. It's got a weather. You've got storms, lightning, rain, but it's uh, kind of a methane-based uh, environment. So we human beings wouldn't do well there. And yet, this report said that the flying saucers were coming from there. So now we jump, you know, all these 70 years later, because this I'm talking about a report circa 1949, you know, 50. Now we jump to Huygens and the landing there. And now we jump to last year in California at Mono Lake. A group of... um, biologists from NASA announced that they had found a new life form living in Mono Lake, California. And this life form is a form of DNA that's bound by arsenic and not carbon. This is unbelievable. I mean, we're talking about the discovery of a totally new form of life here on the planet Earth that has survived for millions of years but has not been able to propagate uh, and expand farther than this lake because the conditions on Earth are hostile right. to it. Because right. it takes a lot of um, processing activity for it to be uh, collecting the arsenic necessary to keep its DNA code together. But right. the upshot of this is this. It has proven that life comes in more than carbon-based forms. Right. And it showed the NASA scientists that they have been looking for life in too narrow a window. <laughs> right. And this, you should have seen the faces of... There's a, it was a, she was a very young, uh, up-and-coming young scientist. Uh, I think her name was uh, Dr. Wolf. And she was there with all the old hands sitting in, in, the, in a symposium. And they were really begrudging, begrudgingly acknowledging her discovery, but trying to keep her down. She was really, you know, as you say, hot to trot, and they were advanced <laughs> ideas. But here's the here's the, the peak of the, the the peak moment for me, having giving you all that background of what I'd heard about Titan and the tracking of UFOs. She goes on to say, now this life form has not been very successful here on Earth because the temperature is too high on Earth. The temperature makes the arsenic break down too quickly. 
And so this life form has to keep working to acquire the arsenic and process it to keep itself together. But such a life form might exist uh, and might be able to propagate on some other uh, planet or uh, perhaps a place like Saturn's moon Titan. Right. <laughs> she says because there the temperatures are much colder and the arsenic would endure, it wouldn't break down as rapidly as it right. does here on Earth, and so on and so forth. So, you know, this is the kind of logical detective work that, that I do. You know, and it's called, you know, a lot of people would listen to what I'm saying and say it's speculation, but no, my friend, it's called inference. Yeah. And yeah, inference yeah. is a very important tool in logic, you know. No, I've always been uh, I've always been sound of mind that I you know I've always understood that life in the cosmos could st- could definitely come in many different forms and you're absolutely right you know for a very long time we've only thought of life forms you know coming in in carbon based you know kind of like we mm-hmm. are but right. it, life could be in many different kind of forms that we just can't even fathom. You just said the word I was hoping I, I was going to say I want to talk to you about life on Venus. You know, that's pretty far-fetched, right? Because everybody says, oh, the Venus. I mean, that's like hell. It's 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, uh, methane, carbon dioxide, uh, atmosphere. It's like greenhouse effects gone crazy. Greenhouse effect, on and on. They're all the protests. Yes. Now what? <laughs> now what do we find? Okay, is temperature is the temperature limiting to life? Well, it might have been before the discovery of the black smokers. Right. The black smokers down at the at the bottom of the uh, Pacific Ocean where they originally found them, the life is existing there in temperatures of 775 degrees and pitch blackness. And life forms, tube worms, shrimps, crabs, this, those <laughs> life forms are thriving at 775 degrees yep. Fahrenheit. Now... You know, we we all were all aghast when I said life on Venus 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, if life can exist at the, in, the, in the pitch black uh, medium, the ocean, at 775 degrees, well, 25 degrees isn't that much different to me. No, anything is possible. And then imagine. <laughs> now here's the other thing. Uh, they try to they talk about this greenhouse effect on uh, on Venus. And the tendency is to think of it again as a you know kind of rarefied, high CO2 uh, atmosphere. But I've been reading on Venus, and um, at the surface, the pressure is 92 atmospheres. You know, like here on Earth, right here at sea level, as I assume you are, we are at one atmosphere. And right. Imagine the pressure. You know, for, we'd have to go down into the ocean pretty far to, to experience 92 atmospheres. But I'm saying to myself, 92 atmospheres uh, of pressure at the surface of Venus, uh, I would think that that would be a pretty viscous, uh, pretty fluid, uh, liquid form of CO2 if, if such a thing could exist. And then on top of it, Venus being so much closer to the sun would be exposed to so much um, higher frequencies of energies and particles right. bathed in the... Who knows Who knows what kind of a life soup the, you know, the creation could uh, concoct on, on, on Venus. So I've been doing some studies on photographs on Venus um, that were taken by Magellan. 
And again, the photograph that came to me was uh, a very, very dark photograph that looked like a cracks in the landscape. So I started enhancing this Magellan photograph that uh, Kevin Smith of the Kevin Smith Show shared with mm-hmm. me. And I started enhancing it, and all of a sudden the cracks, what I thought were cracks on the surface, actually looked like vines. And then there are other structures hmm. that I would swear, if if I were on Earth, I would say that's vegetation. Huh. I'll tell you, man. That would be as amazing. As far as life is concerned, God only knows. And they're <laughs> not God. <laughs> no, they're not. And that's a perfect place to end it, guys. We've actually run our course tonight. Uh, just an amazing uh, guest again, Mr. Robert Morningstar. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Uh, it, Thanks, Angel. You know, it's always a pleasure. It blows my mind every time you're on the show. And got to have you back on in the near future, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. And hi to all uh, all your listening and listeners. I enjoyed it very much tonight. Have a good night. Now, again, uh, tell everybody before you go the uh, website address uh, for all your stuff so they can, uh, you know, read up on everything you're working on and, and track you down and stock you. Okay. <laughs> um, my uh, UFO stuff you can find at uh, ufodigest.com. And my JFK work you can find at deeppolitics.org. And in, in deeppolitics.org, there's a connector, connecting link to JFK Research. So enjoy it, folks. The great Robert Morningstar. Thank you again, sir, for I being on here tonight. It. Have a good, have a good night, it. folks. Bye-bye. Take care. Guys, thanks again for being here tonight. I really appreciate it. Everybody that listened in tonight, and we had uh, a lot of folks listening in. Thank you, uh, Heavenly Angel, for calling in. Great caller as uh, usual. And our two guests. Mr. Robert Morningstar, who, again, is one of my favorite guests to have on this show, and I will have him back on very, very soon so we can talk a little bit more about Venus and uh, the other planets and other things that come up from here to there. And, of course, our guest for the first hour, Ms. Marie-Alix Ravel. Please check out her book, Marie Antoinette Presents Reincarnation. Interesting topic. With that, I will check out for the evening. 